Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. I'm Rick Graber. I'm president of the Bradley Foundation, and on behalf of our team and our board of directors, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the Bradley Foundation's annual symposium here in our nation's capital. Special shout-out, of course, and thanks to Kay Coles-James and her team at Heritage for once again hosting this event and for assisting in all of the logistics that goes into events such as this. You are a true pleasure to work with the entire team here at Heritage. Uh, and also a heartfelt thanks to Diane Saylor from our Bradley team. Diane, who will... <laughs> Some of you know Diane will begin a well-deserved retirement in June. Uh, she's been the primary organizer of this event for the past couple of years and for decades has led our higher education portfolio at Bradley. Diane, thank you once again for all that you've done for the foundation uh, over these many years. Thank you. Uh, as most of you know, today's a big day for us at Bradley. Uh, it's Bradley Prizes Day, when we have the privilege of bestowing upon three or four extremely worthy people our annual Bradley Prize. At Bradley, we focus our grant making on organizations that are dedicated to our constitutional order, that are committed to free markets, that are dedicated to the formation of informed and capable citizens and are committed to the fundamental institutions of our civil society. Our Bradley Prize winners reflect and embody those principles in their daily work, and our goal for this symposium is to shine a spotlight on at least one of those principles during this day of celebration. And I'm quite confident that we'll accomplish that goal with today's lineup of distinguished panelists and, of course, our moderator, Hans von Spakovsky. Hans is a senior legal fellow and manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative in the Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies here at Heritage. He's a well-recognized authority on a wide range of issues, including civil rights, elections, the First Amendment, immigration and the rule of law, and government reform. He served on President Trump's Advisory Commission on Election Integrity, and was a member of the Federal Election Commission, among many, many other responsibilities. Hans is a graduate of Vanderbilt Law School and MIT, and we are delighted that he has once again agreed to serve as moderator for this event. So without any further delay, let me turn it over to Hans to introduce our topics and our panelists for today's session. Thanks so much. Rick, you get extra points for actually pronouncing my name uh, correctly. <laughs> I, I have a name that's not made for television. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Heritage Foundation and the 2019 Bradley Symposium, The State of the Constitution, 
the governing document that our uh, great republic uh, started and was signed on September 17, 1787, signed by 38 of the 41 delegates present at the Constitutional Convention after three months of debate. Now, I'm sure all of you have heard uh, the very well-known story of Benjamin Franklin, who, as he was leaving the convention, was approached by a group of citizens who asked him what kind of government had the delegates uh, put together. Uh, His answer was a republic, if you can keep it. Uh, That warning by Franklin is what we are here to discuss today, whether we are losing our republic and what we can do to keep it. Now, as the introduction And the program for the symposium says our constitutional republic is threatened by everything from uh, threats to elections with uh, uh, security vulnerabilities in our whole election process to corruption to a rise in censorship in the political and cultural speech that's fundamental to a free society. Uh, Many of our liberties are also being eroded by an ever-growing national government far larger and more powerful than anything the delegates to the Constitutional uh, Convention could have imagined in their worst nightmares. That includes a vast administrative state stocked with a bureaucratic swamp that is unanswerable to voters and unaccountable to the public. The creation of that fourth estate is due to members of Congress, regardless of (coughs) their political party, delegating vast swaths of their constitutional authority to federal agencies to an extent again, that I do not believe that the convention delegates, James Madison, Benjamin Franklin, or George Washington, could possibly have foreseen. Our republic has been further weakened by judges who misinterpret the Constitution and, most importantly, fail to apply the limits on the power of the federal government that are hardwired into the document. Now, all of you recall that Ronald Reagan said that preserving our freedom is something that must be fought for and protected in every generation. And while our Constitution, I think, and many agree, is probably the greatest political document ever created in human history to provide the structure for a government dedicated to liberty and economic opportunity, it is not a self-actuating document that can protect itself. It requires an independent, educated, moral people who not only have a political, historical, and cultural understanding of the importance of the Constitution's origin, the rights it protects, and the limits it imposes on government, but it requires a people who are dedicated and devoted to protecting it. Such a society is difficult to preserve when many members of the public show an alarming and shocking ignorance of the Constitution. It is also hard to preserve such a society when a country cannot control its borders, and its very economic, political, and social fabric is threatened by massive, uncontrolled, illegal immigration. Uh, We are a country built on legal immigration based on a patriotic assimilation model in which we have welcomed immigrants of every color and creed from all over the world as long as they agreed to become Americans once they arrived here, not hyphenated Americans, as Teddy Roosevelt warned, and they agreed to accept the responsibilities of living in a constitutional republic, not just its benefits. That unique cultural heritage 
that has provided the glue that has tied us together as one nation, one people, is being destroyed, uh, destroyed by those who want to divide us and to separate us, to make us cling to group identities that have nothing to do with making us a great people, but everything to do with seizing political power at the expense of e pluribus unum. Now, we have three outstanding panels here today to discuss all of these issues. I'm going to keep the introductions very short so that you can do what you came here to do, which is hear the speakers. I will tell you that in addition to their other accomplishments, uh, all of our panelists are well-known authors and columnists, so I am not going to recite the many books and articles they have published, uh, nor all the newspapers and news websites where they have been fe featured. Suffice it to say that our speakers have covered almost the entire spectrum of the publishing and media world uh, in the United States. Now, our first session is going to be on process threats to the republic, fraud, corruption, and censorship. I'm going to introduce all three of our speakers and then let them go at it. Uh, J. Christian Adams is going to cover election fraud, gaming the system. He's president and general counsel of the Public Interest Legal Foundation, an organization dedicated to protecting the security and integrity of elections. Uh, he is a former Justice Department lawyer, where he was one of my colleagues when I was there. And he's a former counsel to the South Carolina Secretary of State. Uh, he's also the legal editor at PJ Media. Uh, next, we're going to have Peter Schweitzer, who's going to cover Secret Empires, the New Corruption, that's a great title, Peter. You should uh, write a book with that title. <laughs> uh, he's co-founder and president of the Government Accountability Institute, which fights uh, cronyism and corruption in government. Uh, he was the William J. Casey Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and served as a consultant to the Office of Presidential Speechwriting for several years. And then we're going to have uh, Alan Gelso on the constitutional crisis of free speech on campus. Uh, he's the Henry R. Luce Professor and Director of Civil War Era Studies at Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. Uh, he has served as a visiting professor at Princeton University and a fellow at Harvard University. He has won many awards, the most important of which for all of us, of course, is the Bradley Prize last year. So, Christian? Thank you, Hans. I, I was also impressed with Rick's mastery of your name, although I did hear someone refer to you a moment ago as Hans von Spafoksky. <laughs> <clears throat> Good morning. We gather again to discuss the state of the Constitution. I'd wager that today's audience has divergent expectations. To some of you, today's event is one of, in a series of familiar Washington events where interesting and thoughtful discussion will occur and the ramifications and insights will be confined largely to internal intellectual stimulation. In other words, this morning you are expecting an exercise that catalogs some fascinating academic ideas about the Constitution. To others here today, this symposium can barely keep up with the intensifying destruction of bedrock Western values engineered and managed by the left in conference rooms, and collaborative open floor plans with cubicles at outfits like Arabella's Advisors, the New Venture Fund, the Democracy Alliance, the Media Consortium, the Climate Resistance Fund, and so many, many others. 
In other words, the state of the Constitution is one of immediate crisis, with progressive groups no longer interested in debating ideas, but engaged in open, unashamed, and hyper-funded efforts to destroy the Constitution and replace our system of limited government with their utopia. Now, the Constitution stands in the way of their utopia, for now, but the progressive left cares about process as much as or perhaps more than policy. What do I mean by process? The rules. Who votes? When do you vote? How do you vote? How do you fund campaigns? Who decides election rules? That is process. Consider election process, the area where my group, the Public Interest Legal Foundation, is most active. I will have more on elections uh, being corrupted later in the talk, but for now consider efforts to destroy the electoral college system put in place by the founders. Federalist 68 said the electoral college prevented, quote, tumult and disorder. I could use all of my time here to discuss why the electoral college is so important, but our foes have moved well past the debate into the wrecking phase through the national popular vote movement. The national popular vote movement is nothing short of an effort to dissolve the union of 1787. And so far, what has been our response? Debates with proponents, lectures, an opinion page editorial, a very thoughtful paper. I would submit that the institutional left is intensifying efforts to deconstruct the Constitution and our system of limited government. In just the last decade, the left has grown exponentially more muscular, more aggressive, and even more violent. They have adopted tactics consistent with their pedigree, such as denunciations as practiced by the Southern Poverty Law Center, deplatforming groups like the NRA or James O'Keefe from Financial Services, utilizing the powers of the state to target organizations they oppose who support limited government. And they have built hyper-funded, redundant infrastructures to target and smear and sue those who defend the Constitution and limits on government power. They are behaving like their utopian forefathers who authored so much of the 20th century's history. These utopians who hate the Constitution seek openly to end airplane travel. And why not? After all, they enjoyed great success in their attacks on coal. The utopians are redefining hate and bigotry in ways that smear mainstream Christian and Catholic theology. These utopians are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to create a new culture that erases American ideals, a culture that rejects homeownership and driving a car, hates fossil fuels that led to an explosion in human standards of living, promotes communal dining, preferably without beef, blurs birth gender, and elevates environmental stewardship to a pseudo-theology. They hate our Republican form of government and seek to transform election process rules in ways to restructure our system of government. They have blown right through the firewalls that we thought would protect us, such as the notion that they would go too far and cause a backlash. I would argue that their race to the extreme has only attracted more recruits to their cause. 
we forget how attractive extremism was in the 20th century when those longing for purpose and meaning in their life were attracted to extreme causes. When Ronald Reagan spoke to the Chamber of Commerce in Phoenix in 1961, and he said that freedom, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction, I suspect many in the room here today, when you heard that, found it to be gentle and benign overstatement. For much of my life, so did I. But those of us who watch and monitor the left, who oppose them in courtrooms and legislatures, on television, on radio, has seen an unmistakable and worrisome intensification. They have grown more muscular, more aggressive, more well-funded, and most troubling, more open about their plain intentions. I'm afraid that Ronald Reagan was right. One generation is all it could take. Yet we have this consolation. The contest is squarely within the line of other 18th, 19th, and 20th century history, characterized by utopians versus defenders of individual rights. Even my area of election law is dominated by noisy utopians. They're obsessed with changing process rules. They believe if they change how elections are conducted, their utopian policies on everything else you care about will be enacted. Energy, rule of law, property rights, free exercise, free speech, education, labor. They will be enacted as policy. In other words, the left views changing election process as the way to change the country's policy. Don't take my word for it. Listen to what they say. All of the below organizations I'm going to name are active on election process issues relating to reviving the Voting Rights Act. Here we go. Greenpeace, SEIU, ASME, NARAL, MALDEF, League of Conservation Voters, Freedom Socialist Party, the NEA, and the Union of Concerned Scientists. What? The Union of Concerned Scientists cares about voting issues? Didn't they exist just to harass Ronald Reagan when he was proposing the Strategic Defense Initiative. Listen from their website. The Union of Concerned Scientists looks at the increasing barriers to voting, felon disenfranchisement, and restrictive rules on registration and the ability to get to the polls. That's the Union of Concerned Scientists. The left advocates seemingly innocuous changes to election law to benefit their proposed policy organizations. Consider Motor Voter. Passed in 1993... Motor Voter was supposed to give you the right to register at driver's license offices, but instead now reaches such things as social service agencies and even methadone clinics, right? And so what you have is a citizen checkbox in Motor Voter that is the only thing preventing non-citizens from getting on the rolls. Now, meanwhile, the the left denies that there's even non-citizens on the rolls, and I'll show you in the moment some evidence regarding that. When states try to fix the problem, like Kansas and Georgia and Alabama, they are promptly sued by some of these left-wing groups. Now, let me show you some slides. How can aliens possibly get on the voter rolls, right? That's not something that should happen. You must be able to see something, right? Okay. The Public Interest Legal Foundation... The Public Interest Legal Foundation has been sued. We have six lawsuits to collect voter records. And what we've been doing is going around the country and collecting voter records relating to vulnerabilities in the system. And this is one. This is a New Jersey voter registration form. And you'll see the question, are you a citizen of the United States? And the applicant marked no, as you can see, but yet was still registered to vote. Uh, 
Now, this is not a one-off. I could stand here for an hour and scroll through slides just like this all around the country that we've gotten. But are they actually voting? Here we go. This is Mr. Cortez. Now we can see the voting history. The record was only created because Mr. Cortez wanted to naturalize. And when Mr. Cortez wanted to naturalize, he needed to clean up his act. INS said, you need to make sure you're not registered to vote. So Mr. Cortez wrote and created a record, which we were able to capture in our searches, that also showed his voting history. I'm just going to make an assumption. Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton, Al Gore, John Kerry, Gray Davis, you get the point. Okay, this is from California. So he is not the only person that was registered to vote in California. You get a sense now how California has been so radically transformed in the last 20 years. Things are so crazy in California, you can't go out in public without signs everywhere warning you that you're going to catch cancer if you take one more step forward. And if you do take one more step forward in San Francisco, you should be very careful where you step. <laughs> See now how process and policy interact. When you have vulnerabilities like this in the system, you can transform a state. Let me show you another state. This is Michigan. Now, I hope you can read that. What this is is an individual who was registered to vote in Michigan. Again, you could see his voting history. He's a non-citizen. And he said, I just received a voter registration card in the mail, but I'm not a citizen. And he seems shocked. We can see a long, detailed voting history for this alien. Remember, these are only the aliens who are self-reporting that we're getting the records from. Sort of like self-deporting, this is self-reporting to the election officials. And so these are just three examples of hundreds that we have found in our litigation research around the country. And believe me, this is exactly what the left wants to be happening, because they fight it in the courtrooms anytime someone tries to fix it. In closing, I fear the Constitution will suffer increasing attacks by this new muscular left who wants to do away with it, and they say so. The left has adopted aggressive tactics, and our job is to develop new ways to hit back and to defend the treasure that was created in 1787. If we keep responding the way we did 20 or 30 years ago, we risk losing this precious treasure given to us. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Uh, that was terrific, Christian. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the threat that corruption poses to the U.S. Constitution. And I'm going to talk about it not to minimize the issues that Christian is talking about or, or the other issues that will be raised here today, but because corruption is often overlooked uh, as opposed to the ideological threats to the Constitution. Uh, it's overlooked, I think, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's complex. It can be difficult to evaluate. But second of all, because it tends to be a bipartisan problem. Uh, the money sloshing through Washington, D.C. does not just touch Democratic hands. It touches both political parties. And to look at the amount of money Washington, uh, flowing through Washington, D.C., let me just give you sort of a, a, an, an illustration. I did a special for Fox News a few years ago called Boomtown on, on how Washington, D.C. was becoming this wealthy town. And one of the things we did on this segment for Fox News is we interviewed a guy who works for Ferrari of Washington, D.C., 
Uh, there's a Ferrari dealership in town. And we said, how's business? And he said, business is great, but there's a problem. And we said, well, what do you mean? What's the problem? If business is great, how can there be a problem? He said, well, Ferrari of North America is upset because in South Beach, where we have a dealership, and in Beverly Hills, where we have a dealership, when people buy cars, they finance them. And Ferrari of North America wants you to finance your car purchases. When they buy Ferraris in Washington, D.C., they pay cash. <laughs> now, I'm not opposed to making money. I believe in the free market. But when you talk about government corruption, you're no longer talking about the free market. And what I'd like to do is talk about a couple of examples of, of corruption that exists today and then explain briefly why I think this is a central issue. First, let me talk about the rise of America's princelings, the rise of America's princelings. And I'm going to take you back to December of 2013, when Vice President Joe Biden was flying on Air Force Two for a series of meetings in Asia, particularly to Beijing, China. Now, on the plane with him was his son, Hunter Biden. Joe Biden had a series of meetings by a lot of press accounts, the Washington Post and others. Uh, Joe Biden was relatively soft on the Chinese. Ten days after they returned, Hunter Biden's small boutique investment firm called Rosemont Seneca Partners uh, procured a $1 billion private equity deal with the Chinese government. Not with a Chinese corporation, not with an American company in Beijing, China, but with the Chinese government itself. It was rapidly expanded to $1.5 billion, and it was the worst, first of a series of deals that the son of the vice president procured with the Chinese government. Well, isn't that just sort of free market activity? I would contend no. First of all, Joe Biden was the point person on Obama administration policy towards China, which means he made crucial, critical decisions. Point number two, Hunter Biden had no background in private equity, and he had no background in China. The question is, what was going on? And if you look at the Chinese literature, it's pretty clear. The Chinese believe that American politics can be cracked in the way that Chinese politics operates, namely through princeling arrangements. And for anybody doing business in China, they know uh, that to get business done with a Chinese minister, it's good to hire the son or daughter of that minister as a consultant. This is the rise of the princelings. This is not unique to China, and this is not unique to Joe Biden. This is a growing phenomenon that we see in Washington, D.C., where family members become integral parts of self-enrichment by political leaders in the United States. And the reason it occurs is because government officials in Washington, D.C. have increasingly more power. More power means they can pick winners and losers, and that means that there are people around the world willing to put money in their pockets to get what they need. Let me talk about a second phenomenon briefly, and that is the problem of extortion, of extortion. Uh, a lot of people have the image of corruption in politics. They go back to the great movie, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington with Jimmy Stewart. You guys all remember the great movie. And in, in this story, essentially, the problem was you had this idealistic senator who was appointed, who wanted to do these wonderful things, but these outside corrupting factors uh, just simply eventually were, were, were going to wear him down. In other words, 
the traditional view of corruption is that public servants uh, are idealistic, they want to do the right thing, and you have all these outside nefarious forces that are trying to bribe them and corrupt them. Certainly that takes place, although I think oftentimes it's more an extortion model where the public official is trying to create a demand for their own services, which leads to an extortive relationship. And let me just give you um, uh, one example, and this is what I call mud farming in Washington, D.C., mud farming in Washington, D.C. Anybody here that reads William Faulkner uh, might be familiar with a novel he wrote years ago called The Reavers. Uh, and in that story, it, it recounts um, the, the main character going along uh, this dirt road um, in a car. And he quickly realizes that there's a family that lives by the road that at night will go up and plow the road and bring in buckets of water, creating mud. The next day, they wait by the side of road with a team of horses so that when people's cars get stuck in the road, they charge an exorbitant fee to pull them out um, of the mud that they created in the first place. That's a little bit how this process works in Washington, D.C., and there are lots of mud farmers. Let me give you one very prominent example, uh, and this is a huge problem in all sorts of areas. Go back to the Dodd-Frank rules on financial regulation. Anybody here in the private sector, financial sector, People are probably familiar uh, with Dodd-Frank. Uh, Dodd-Frank, uh, when you count all the rules, is a piece of legislation that is about 10,000 pages long. 10,000 pages long. This is the first revision to financial markets since Glass-Steagall in the 1930s. Glass-Steagall was about 36 pages long. How did we go from 36 pages to 10,000 pages? Well, yes, our financial markets are more complicated but they're not that much more complicated. What we have in Dodd-Frank is a document that Warren Buffett and the brightest minds on Wall Street say they cannot understand. And it's my contention that that's precisely what it's designed to do. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, all you need to really know is what happened to the people that actually wrote the Dodd-Frank bill. What actually happened to the congressional staffers who wrote a bill that people could not understand? After Dodd-Frank was passed, they quit their jobs, and they opened up a consultancy firm doing what? Compliance. Yes, interpreting the law that they had written for Wall Street financial firms. The walk-in fee was $100,000. That was the walk-in fee for that kind of advice. Uh, my point here is simply this. The complexity that we see in laws, rules, and regulations in Washington, D.C., I would contend, is less an issue related to the complexity of the modern world, and it has more to do with a business model in which bureaucrats, congressional staffers, and decision makers want complexity. They don't want simplicity. They want complexity because it can be monetized, and it is being monetized. So in closing... What does this mean as it regards to the Constitution? I would say it means everything. Because the representative government that our founders intended was a representative form of government that we could understand, that we could interact with, and that we would have clear representation by our leaders. They might not make the decision that we always want, but by and large, their interests would be of their constituents uh, back at home and upholding the U.S. Constitution. 
What corruption has done, what self-enrichment has done, is created a circumstance where you have, in effect, a bipartisan machine in Washington, D.C., in which individuals can self-enrich by undermining those basic precepts of the Constitution. And with that, I'll say thank you. I think I have some slides. Maybe if I... Ah, the magic words. <laughs> there we are. Very good. Thank you. If freedom of speech is one of the bedrock principles of a democratic republic, then surely nothing wears a more depressing aspect for the future of that republic than the ugly outbursts of free speech suppression, which have become increasingly common on American university and college campuses. Unless we lack either eyes or ears, we have been witness over and over again to violent shout-downs, as at Middlebury College, harassment, as at Sarah Lawrence College, disinvitations, 23 of them so far in 2019, and outright riots over political issues and personalities. And so much so that President Trump has felt impelled to issue an executive order threatening institutions which permit or practice such silencing with the withdrawal of federal funding. These incidents have a far more ominous form than mere halftime hijinks and arise from impulses more deliberate than momentary umbrage taken at a speaker's opinions. The exercise of any right, constitutional, statutory, or natural, has always run the risk of triggering painful, sometimes literally painful, responses. But in such cases, such as a ripe tomato in the speaker's face, or a ripe fist aimed at the speaker's jaw, we are usually talking about the emotional tinder of the occasion. And such incidents can be treated as violations of simple criminal statutes concerning assault and battery. What has made the recent rash of campus collisions over free speech much more troubling is twofold. First of all, their intellectual justification and how carefully orchestrated they have been under the rubric of a public philosophy which regards rights as an illusion, and thus serves to instruct communities of young American learners, either by example or by precept, in contempt for the American constitutional order. And secondly, their location within the circle of the university, and how flagrantly these encounters throw to the winds the very purpose of the university, a purpose older by centuries and civilizations than the constitutional order itself. Neither of these new twists presents itself in the company of an easy solution. Freedom of speech is nestled in the First Amendment and bars Congress from passing any laws abridging the freedom of speech. 
straightforward as that seems, it actually has a checkered history. Since the ban on abridgments of speech was often understood until the 20th century to be a limitation on Congress alone, thus leaving the states and private institutions to sort out under their own roofs what speech would be considered free and what not. Moreover, the defense of free speech was often narrowed if it could be shown that such speech led to a bad tendency. Not surprisingly, modern restrictions on campus speech have been defended on these same grounds. University speech codes, it is argued, are imposed by private actors, not publicly funded ones, and enjoy the same protection private employers would enjoy if they fired employees who badmouthed the boss. Other defenders of speech codes argue that some speech has a bad tendency. It either inflicts emotional harm on certain hearers or has the potential to incite or protect others in bad behavior. And to be candid, there is a difficulty posed by the fact that no bright line exists between speech and action. If speech could be made to stand alone and purely in the abstract, there might be less reason to object to objectionable speech. But speech and action all too often flow together. And so it is not an illegitimate question to ask whether speech which generates harms should enjoy the same protection as speech which prefers Bach to Mahler. These ambiguities have provided a convenient opening to arguments that certain speech and certain speakers may be suppressed, and especially on university campuses, because the university has the right to police speech on its own private turf, and because some speech may indeed provoke harmful results. Not actual murder and mayhem, perhaps, but certainly psychological wounding, cognitive unhappiness, and the speaking of what should be unspeakable, all of which produce trauma. This, in turn, costs the university money, whether in the form of creating so-called safe spaces and elaborate counseling programs, or safety and police costs, which the university is entitled to act upon in its own self-interest. There is a surface plausibility to each of these responses, and in both instances, it is wrong. Yes, each of the colleges and universities that I mentioned at the beginning are private institutions, but not even private institutions, not even employers, are authorized to punish political speech or to behave as though the Constitution somehow stopped at some boundary around their campuses. And yes, speech and action have no bright line of separation. And yes, speech can lead to reckless incitement, as in Justice Holmes's famous example in Schenck versus U.S. of shouting fire in a crowded theater. But in the arguments made in defense of the suppression incidents I listed earlier, 
There was no attempt made at recognizing that there is no bright line between speech and action. Instead, the argument is made that there is no line whatsoever. Speech is violence, and silencing it is justified as an act of self-defense. Speech now becomes, as John McWhorter describes it, utterly athletic and capable purely by itself of bounding about, inflicting harms on virtuous but fragile college undergraduates. It has become common to ridicule these harms as a fiction, as a form of juvenile retrogression, in which college students are encouraged to behave like three-year-olds who have been told unpleasant truths about what they must eat for dinner. This would be a mistake, because standing behind the cultivation of fragility and safetyism in speech is a long political rationale, stretching back to the premier Marxist philosophers of the last century. Antonio Gramsci, <coughs> Theodor Adorno, and Max Horkheimer, and in America, Herbert Marcuse. From Gramsci to Marcuse and beyond, they have sought to transfer Marx's concepts of bourgeois domination of the working class from being the brutal business of political oppression to the more subtle imposition of cultural hegemony. The policeman's truncheon, in other words, has been exchanged for soothing political words about freedom and liberty, but the result was always the same. In that fashion, in Marcuse's memorable phrase, free speech is actually repressive tolerance, creating an apparently free political order whose freedom is, in practice, a disguise for ensuring control. Speech is literally action, and free speech should not be mistaken for some objective attempt to allow reasonable people to arrive at truth. There is no truth, only power. And free speech is only an anesthetic to numb the grinding of that power. Hence, the use of heckler's vetoes, accusations of bizarre or even imaginary bigotries, and outright physical force are rationalized by the conviction that the only quantity operating in a political system is power. And that such suppression of speech is a perfectly reasonable way of countering one form of power with another that protects the disenfranchised or marginalized. It may come as some slight consolation to the speech suppressors to know that this defense of speech suppression is not new in American life. What will diminish that consolation is to discover that this was the language and the tactic of southern slaveholders before the Civil War. Slaveholders also believed that speech and actions flowed together, and that the public utterance of abolitionist speech would render their slaves ungovernable and threatening. Hence, 
states which legalized slavery not only banned the circulation of speech which advocated the emancipation of slaves, but censored the United States mail, attempted to prosecute northern abolitionists under a tissue-thin doctrine of constructive flight, and finally induced the United States House of Representatives to refuse the discussion of petitions criticizing slavery, thus involving another First Amendment right. And in an uncanny echo of campus administrators' pleas that certain speakers will cost them too much in security costs to allow them to speak freely, Boston's alderman closed Faneuil Hall in 1837 to an abolition meeting on the grounds that such a meeting would cause a breach of the peace. Of course, what is also worth noticing is that opponents of slavery in the 1830s argued back with what are surprisingly modern legal responses, that the First Amendment's guarantees are national and not limited to the binding of Congress, and that the location of sovereignty in a republic in the body of the people at large means that the arbitrary suppression of speech by some one agency, whether public or private, is an assault on the fundamental order of a republic. I do not know that these arguments have any less force now than they did then when they cost some abolitionists their lives. The other troublesome aspect of the current rash of speech suppression is its location on university and college campuses. For the suppression of speech has been a violation of the soul of the university for as long as there have been universities. And indeed, as far beyond that, as Socrates. Universities are, as Keith Whittington has written, the incubators of ideas, something which is especially important for universities in a democratic society. Monarchies and despotisms only want universities for the credentialing of their servants. But in a democracy, where the search for understanding never arrives at a single point, free speech is essential to the advancement of knowledge and understanding. Within the life of the university, there is only one criterion for determining who may speak, and that is expertise. Granted that expertise is not always easy to determine. What is, however, easy to determine is that substituting comfort for dissent, and social engagement for intellectual curiosity are poisons to the life of the university. Not only do they encourage obstruction and ostracism, they stifle all attempts at the improvement of understanding as posing too great a risk. And they thus ensure what Whittington calls a failure of the university to fully realize its own ideals and aspirations. It is unclear whether President Trump's executive order will have any effect on this, 
In fact, one of the earliest responses to Trump's order came from former New York University President John Sexton, whom Time magazine hailed in 2009 as one of the ten best college presidents in the country. Sexton dismissed the problem of censorship on American university campuses as fictitious. This see-no-evil approach is startling, considering what everyone else has had no trouble seeing. But for those who can see, the question then becomes, what can be done? There are certainly several ways that university leaders, trustees, students, and alumni can speak to the suppression of campus speech. First, rebuke. Rebuke the attitude which reduces college students to children who require vast doses of protectiveness. Second, expose the use of obstruction and disruption for what they are, the tactics of despotism. Third, seek alliances. Seek alliances with all those, irrespective of their political identity or allegiance in other respects, who are troubled themselves by the suppression of free speech. And fourth, agitate, agitate, agitate for viewpoint diversity. Not just diversity as diversity, but viewpoint diversity and administrative neutrality. Only then can the cloud of unreason begin to dissipate, as surely it must when confronted by wisdom and the search after truth. Thank you very much. Well, we do have time for questions. Um, <clears throat> I do have to say, Professor, that you, you really scare me with that. And the reason that it scares me is that I can only see things getting worse. And the reason for that is that we have students going through K through 12, then getting to college, and they're, being, um, they're having restrictive speech codes imposed on them. They're being taught that the, that the First Amendment doesn't uh, apply to speech they might find offensive. And those are the individuals who, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, will be moving into positions in the corporate world, into government, and everywhere else where they can change all of the laws and rules we have governing free speech. I, that, that, that really disturbs me. I, I, would, I would only respond to that by, by an illustration. And an elderly gentleman was seen out in his garden planting a sapling. Someone came along and said, Sir, you are well stricken in years. You are never going to live to see that sapling grow up to be a full-grown tree. Why are you wasting your energy on it? He said, Really? Time is that short for me? I better dig faster. <laughs> are the odds long? Yes. That just means that the target we aim at is bigger. Uh, 
We have people with microphones, so if you would wait, if you raise your hand, uh, I'll recognize you. If you want to direct a question to a particular speaker, please do so. But do wait for the microphone because we are uh, broadcasting this out over the Internet so that people can watch it. Questions? Yes. And, and I'm sorry, please identify yourself and, and please ask a question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is for Professor Golzo. Could you say more about your claim that the First Amendment applies to private colleges and universities? Because my inclination is to think that it does not. Uh, the problem with private institutions is, is that they uh, break their contract with their students by promising free speech and not delivering it. The status of American colleges and universities today used to be, well, I shouldn't say today and then say used to be, but it used to be a fairly clear-cut distinction between what was a public and what was a private institution. Public institution was a state university, or an institution was founded in some way uh, with uh, public direction and public money, for instance, the service academies. That distinction today has become very, very fuzzy indeed, because, in fact, most private institutions have really long ago ceased to be private in, in many practical ways. Uh, all kinds of public funding, whether it's state or federal, or even municipal, flows into the coffers of what are otherwise private institutions. Uh, federal grants, uh, federal administration of student loans uh, forms an, uh, an increasingly important part of the budgets of private institutions. So much so that today, all it takes is one letter from the Department of Education addressed to dear colleagues, and suddenly everything is thrown in a flutter. One example this way uh, came home to me several years ago. When uh, we were in receipt of a letter, as many other colleges and universities were, from the Department of Education, mandating something called a fourth hour uh, the feeling being on the part of the author of the letter that the three-credit hour somehow was not doing quite what it was supposed to do, and therefore we were mandated to give evidence that a fourth hour was somehow being required or involved. This was purely a letter issued by the Department of Education. And yet, when I queried my provost about this, he said very plainly, well, we have to conform to this, if we don't, then we jeopardize the flow of federal money into the institution. This is a private institution. He wasn't saying this out of any uh, particular uh, joy or anticipation. Uh, this has simply become a fact of life. So dear colleague letters of that sort are the sort which private institutions, as private as they like to call themselves, uh, find themselves having to conform and that suggests to me that these are really no longer private institutions. Perhaps at best they become a mixed hybrid of private and public. Uh, but for all practical purposes, the, the so-called private institution of higher education has almost ceased to exist uh, in this country. Only, I can only identify um, a very small number of institutions that would enjoy what we could call a private status, completely, consistently, and entirely. So the steady movement of public money 
from various sources into the budgets, into the uh, revenue streams uh, of, of even what are otherwise private institutions, I think has rendered the whole question of whether an institution is public or private moot. They have all now become, to a certain degree, uh, public institutions. And the only question then becomes, to what degree are you a public or a private institution? The distinction, which used to be fairly clear, has, over the last 25 years, uh, been almost entirely effaced. Michael, right there in the front. second row here, second row in the front. Thank you. Excellent discussion. Michael Maybach with the James Wilson Institute. This question is for Mr. Adams. Um, we have thousands of illegal immigrants coming through our borders. It used to be the Democratic Party was against that. They were protecting, let's say, uh, low-paid workers, et cetera, et cetera, and now they seem to be for open borders. Is this to change the electorate of those states? What is the, the motivation? I don't think you can separate the Democratic Party's views on immigration policy from their wishes and electoral results. Uh, we have seen in California, Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, other states, where there is no question there's a problem, where I showed you some snippets, where aliens are getting on the rolls, because the system just doesn't have the, the capability to stop it. The system doesn't work. Why wouldn't you, right, if you're the Democrats, encourage this sort of thing. I'm, I'm completely convinced it helped transform California because California is the worst of the worst. Not only do they not have a system to fix it, there's so many other systems failures in California's election administration that they can't be caught. And if they are caught, nothing happens. Sometimes they get registered multiple times. We've seen aliens, uh, Logan, maybe we should have gotten that slide, where the fellow, an alien was registered three or four different times simultaneously. And so th this is a... Uh, a breakdown that benefits a political party, period, because they're not coming to vote for limited government free markets. You know, we, we, we know that. Uh, and I, I think Colorado, Illinois, North Carolina, by the way, is, is, is another one where there's a problem. Uh, Florida, Texas, the Rio Grande, uh, that's the only way Texas becomes in play is because what's going on along the Rio Grande River. So it, it's, un, it's perfectly clear to, to me, that this has a political ramification. Yes, there in the back, back row. Yes, sir, you. Bob Woodson, the uh, Woodson Center. Uh, we talked a lot about um, what I'm hearing is an aerial assault. You, you mentioned some suggested ways of challenging. But the left has children's books the most popular book in Amazon is Communism for Kids. They have a ground game. What is the conservative ground game beyond just protesting what the other side is doing? Well, I think you're referring to the culture. Is that okay? Look, the culture is a huge problem. And I uh, know a lot of people are thinking about the culture, how to, how to do something about the culture. And frankly, all, all we face are headwinds. There's very little wind behind us on this. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's relatively bleak. I mean, one, one tactic, I mean, look, you're never going to get Hollywood back. You get pinprick assaults. A couple movies you watch, you go, boy, that wasn't crazy. That's progress. Because you don't go see a crazy movie. Um, and, you know, TV, I mean, my goodness, you can hardly turn it on if there's kids in the room. Uh, even the networks. So I agree with you. The culture is, is a mess. There's a, there's actually, there's a children, there's a children's bookstore right below my office in Alexandria and I, I get to walk by it every day. It's right on King Street. 
And you should see the books that are in the window. I mean, it's not just sort of like she did it or whatever the Hillary book is. It's it's hardcore stuff. And and so how do you deal with that? I mean, I don't have an answer. I don't know if anybody here does. I think we just have to win where we have the capability of winning, and that might not be the culture right now. Well, I think... I think you raise an excellent point, and I think ultimately, given that there is this adversarial culture we face, it really is incumbent upon parents to be engaged. You cannot uh, operate from a position of osmosis that your kids will just somehow by osmosis uh, embrace the values that you have because the culture is, is, is very oppositional. Um, as you look at some of the literature from uh, academics on the left, they talk about the fact that their goal is to replicate their values in other people's children. Uh, and they talk about the fact that they don't have kids, but they want to replicate their values in other people's children. And I think parents need to be aware of that and be engaged, given particularly the fact that all the major cultural institutions are essentially uh, antithetical to conservative values. Another question? Yes, ma'am. I just want people to see I'm giving equal weight to the right side and the left side. <laughs> yes, Brenda Hafera with the Fund for American Studies. My question is for Professor Guelzo. In my observation, the call for the suppression of speech has cropped up pretty rapidly. I would say that my generation, millennials, uh, were moral relativists. And now the current generation, Gen Z, who occupies the academy, are social justice warriors and are making the arguments, like you mentioned, that are Marxist-inspired. One, does that match with your own observation? And two, what do you think the cause of that has been? How long do I have? (laughs) Yes, the Academy, in terms of the people who are its permanent residents, it does present a formidable array of Marxist, semi-Marxist, quasi-Marxist, and then, well, former Marxist, people who've moved beyond Marxism to something more extreme. Yes, there's lots of that there. I remember one disputation in a, in a history department uh, where they could only find a neutral party uh, between the people who were disputants uh, by finding a Maoist. <laughs> that was the neutral party. Uh, so this, yes, this is this is difficult. Difficult, but not impossible. There are beachheads all over academe for people who want to talk about freedom, who want to talk about truth, who want to talk about liberty, and who want to talk about the Constitution. They're not as visible because they don't have tremendous amounts of funding or backing, and yet they are there. And nothing could do a greater deed in terms of changing the nature of American higher education than for people at large to recognize and see this, support it, back it, and, and give it their blessing. Search out those who are doing the good deeds on campuses. Search out those who uphold the integrity of intellectual inquiry. Search out those who understand that freedom in a democracy begins with freedom of thought within its intellectual institutions, and do your very best to encourage those. For those who are within the academy, again, I would, I would say do not, do not fear 
do not be afraid. The winds do not always blow in one direction. There are opportunities. And while I will be the first to counsel wisdom and prudence in how you approach questions or confrontations, nevertheless, the opportunities are there, and reason and truth are extraordinarily powerful weapons, even in the face of those who scream. Those who scream eventually run out of breath. Reason and truth are permanent things. Am I an optimist in saying that? Perhaps I am. But I will be an optimist, and I will continue to be an optimist about that, and struggle to be an optimist, because I think that reason and truth demand that. John, there's a second row. Yeah. So, uh, largely for Christian and Peter, um, you know, we at least nominally have the levers of government prosecution, the D Department of Justice. Are we prosecuting um, voter fraud? California, we discovered hundreds of thousands of people that had died on the rolls, that, but, but about half of them had registered after they had died, so we know there's a systematic effort going on. Um, we, we've got pretty well-documented evidence of, of you know, pay-for-play scandals. None of them seem to be prosecuted. Why isn't more being done on that front? Well, credit where credit's due. Western District of Texas... Uh, is prosecuting non-citizen voting uh, there. Eastern District of North Carolina, I think the U.S. Attorney's Higdon, is that right? Tom Higdon. Uh, and, and frankly, a lot of that is because buttons have been pushed in those areas. But you're right, there hasn't been a, a seemingly wholesale change of atmosphere. Look, I would direct you to what happened when President Trump appointed me to the Presidential Advisory Commission and appointed Hans. Look at that onslaught. 12 different lawsuits attacking us. They're still attacking it. They're still litigating it. This case is still going on, by the way. I don't know if you knew this. And, and so you saw this full attack on simply talking about voter fraud. The left devotes enormous amounts of resources to it. Back to your question about timing. I think one of the things that happened is Obama happened. And when Obama was president, the left crystallized and developed these infrastructures in ways they didn't before Bush or before Obama, during Bush. And they were able to fund things and get money. And suddenly people were former Department of Justice officials and former administration advisors. And they were able to raise money from all these, these mushrooming left-wing sources that, that have been documented by some of the people in this room. And, and I think Obama happened, and you're watching... They attack any time voter fraud. Look, as Hans and I have experienced, merely us talking to Justice Department officials about crimes is controversial to them. We shouldn't be doing that. Or we shouldn't be referring cases to Commonwealth's attorneys in Virginia because we shouldn't ever mention these things. That's just another form of voter suppression, John. I would add to that that when it comes to the issue of corruption, uh, it's very difficult because the laws are not always clear uh, as to what constitutes an illegal act. Um, but I think the larger issue and challenge is that so much of what goes on is either deemed legal or is not even disclosed. So, you know, for example... Um, you know, take the case of Joe Biden, but again, there are, there are other examples. It's not limited to Joe Biden by any means. Um, in his particular case, you know, he has to disclose uh, a $500 campaign contribution. He has to disclose if he owns $500 in GE stock. But if his son does a billion-dollar private equity deal with a foreign rival government, there's no disclosure requirement. 
And, and I uh, sat down and uh, talked with two uh, uh, senators about this, and, and they said, look, it'd be very simple. In the financial disclosure, we should just have a line that says, do you have a family member that uh, you know, has a you know, commercial dealing with a foreign government? Yes or no? And if yes, disclose it. Um, and, and the senator, he wouldn't mind me saying, Senator Ted Cruz uh, said, the problem is, is, how do you get that passed in the United States Senate? How do you get that passed in Congress? So to my mind, disclosure is key and also consistency is key. I think the frustration a lot of people have as it comes to uh, Mueller and a lot of the other investigations is that it's exclusively or it seems to be exclusively on one side. In other words, if you're going to look at um, uh, relationships between political figures and the Russian government, then let's look at all of it. Let's just not look at one particular person that you don't like, uh, which is way the, the way that the practice has been. So th- that's my answer. I know it's not very satisfying, but uh, I think disclosure is key, uh, and I think we need to insist upon consistency, and I think that's what a lot of people want, and I think that's the, 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 the approach that's consistent with the Constitution. If I could mention something on this, because it involves the work you did, Peter, to show you what what a problem this is with prosecutors, for example, not wanting to go after these cases. Peter's Peter's organization did this great study in 2016 where they got the voter registration lists and voter histories from 21 states, compared them, and they found 8,500 voters who had voted illegally in multiple states in the 2016 election. They, they, there were no false positives, positives. They were comparing folks based on first name, last name, birth date, and full Social Security number. As I understand it, Peter, not a single election official in any of those 21 states contacted you and asked for the names of those voters so they could take them off the rolls, and not a single state or federal prosecutor in any of those states, contacted you so they could investigate and prosecute what is a felony voting multiple times in election. That, that's correct, right? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. And again, these are not people that are registered to vote in two states. These are people that actually voted in two separate states. And I remember when, uh, Hans, you were very helpful on that study. Um, and I remember the conversations early on. I was very enthusiastic saying, you know, we've got something really, really important here. And you you were sort of tempering me by saying, well, just look, there, there's, there's other research that's been done in this area as well. And it's very hard to get people to move even in cases where there's clear-cut clear, clear cut, uh, criminal misconduct. And that comes to the issue of accountability and holding uh, you know, prosecutors and law enforcement officials accountable uh, for the fact that they're only pursuing certain cases and not others. Right, but look what's happening in North Carolina. The, Tom Higdon is, is prosecuting these alien voters in North Carolina, and Elijah Cummings is sending him subpoenas about the prosecutions. So that's what's going on. There's a whole phalanx of defense of criminality yeah. by the left to prevent prosecutions of criminal voter fraud. I right, want time for one more question. Well, Randy, I, Randy? Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I, was, I wanted to put one footnote here that relates the question of corruption and voter fraud to the Electoral College because it seems to me that one of the unspoken, unanticipated benefits of the Electoral College is the damper that it puts yeah. on voter fraud. And what I mean by that is this. Wyoming, for instance, will only cast three electoral votes. There's not much point in arranging voter fraud in Wyoming. That's not going to get you much. 
Um, it, so it'll concentrate, it'll narrow the places where voter fraud becomes something that's really useful to promote and therefore something that can be dealt with directly. If, on the other hand, you move to some kind of national popular vote, then any place in the country, no matter how remote, can become a location for voter fraud to take place. That would mean then tracking down innumerable possibilities for voter fraud and the delay that would put in the election process, the uncertainty that would inject into a presidential election. Well, if you want to see uncertainty, look what happened in Florida and Georgia just in the midterm elections. Multiply that out across the country. That would be, it seems to me, one possible result of the elimination of the Electoral College and the movement to some kind of direct popular election. Yeah, we, I'm afraid we don't have time for more questions. Uh, we're going to take a 15-minute break until 10.30. Please try to uh, angle back to your seats at 10.25 so we can start promptly at 10.30. Thank
stand told us late last night they weren't going to do it. They, you know, they always made a decision like at the last I moment. Know. And they, we spent all this time yesterday with them, giving them all the info they wanted, and then they decided they didn't want to do it. Let's see if I can help Chef get people in.
All right, folks, we'll take a seat. We will get going. I think this crowd is kind of like, you know, my wife and I have this longtime friend who's always a half hour late. So whenever we invite her to go out to dinner, we always tell her to, to be there 30 minutes before we actually want to be there. So that's the only way we get her to be on time. All right, the next... Um, the next panel is on fixing the federal courts and taming the administrative state. And we have three very well-qualified speakers to talk about this, uh, starting with Randy Barnett, who's going to talk about what he, he has a very provocative title, uh, but that you, you tend to do provocative things, Randy. Um, the myth of substantive due process, why both progressives and conservatives are wrong. Uh, Randy's the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at the Georgetown University Law Center, as well as the director of the school's Center for the Constitution. He's been a visiting professor at the University of Pennsylvania, Northwestern, and Harvard Law School, and he won the Bradley Prize in 2014. Now, very interesting, uh, Randy's been both an actual and a fictional prosecutor, having served in the Cook County State attorney's office in Chicago, as well as playing a prosecutor in a science fiction movie called Inalienable. That's with a capital A, <laughs> which I, is that available on Netflix? He said free download on Amazon Prime. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, and, and by the way, I cut off Randy. He didn't get the last question. So now you'll be able to ask yourself uh, the first question and answer it, okay? Okay. Um, 
Next is going to be Paul Clement uh, on stare decisis in the court, a litigator's perspective. Uh, he's a partner at Kirkland and Ellis and the former Solicitor General of the United States. He has argued uh, quite a, I think this is, must be in the Guinness Book of World Records, 95 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, more cases since the year 2000 than any other lawyer uh, inside or outside of Washington, including the lawyers who work inside the Solicitor General's office at the Justice Department, whose only job it is is to argue cases before the Supreme Court. Uh, he clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia and won the Bradley Prize in 2013. And then last but not least, we will have Peter Wallison uh, on judicial fortitude reigning in the administrative state. Uh, he is the Arthur F. Burns Fellow in Financial Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He's a former partner at Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher and was the general counsel of the Treasury Department during the Reagan administration. Uh, he also served as a counsel to President Reagan in the White House and before that as counsel to Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. Randy? Thank you, Hans. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be at any program that's organized by the Bradley Foundation. I am very much looking forward to tonight's award ceremony. It's the highlight of my year. Uh, I get to find out all the accomplishments that the nominees have done and make myself feel guilty that I'm not doing enough uh, to help the cause of liberty and the Constitution as they, as they are. Um, also, great to be on panel with my friend Paul Clement, although whenever I sit close to Paul on a panel, it always makes me nervous since we argued against each other in the Supreme Court in the uh, Gonzalez versus Rage case. I know I was pretty nervous that day, although it did give me solace to the fact that even though it was at that time, I think, his 17th or 18th Supreme Court argument, when he got up to speak before I did, his hand was shaking. And um, that made me feel a lot better because I was scared, <laughs> scared out of my mind um, myself. Um, then we are on the same side of the NFIB challenge, so that, that was always good. And if it weren't for him, I wouldn't have gotten a seat in court. So thank you, Paul. Um, anyway, I'm here to talk about the due process of law. The idea that the due process of law requires judges to examine the substance of legislation to determine whether it is constitutional today is called substantive due process. That label was originally formulated to show the absurdity of the idea. John Hart Ely said it was a concept like green pastel redness, a, the contradictory concept of substantive due process is then contrasted with the redundancy of procedural due process, which sounds like process due process. While the earliest critics of substantive due process were progressives, in recent years the concept has been most vociferously denounced by conservatives. In my remarks this morning, I'm going to explain why, first, the original meaning of the due process of law protected by the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments requires an inquiry into the substance of legislation. In particular, it requires that no person be deprived of life, liberty, or property except pursuant to a valid law that was within the power of the legislature to enact. Before doing that, however, let me begin by explaining why the prevailing terminology of procedural and substantive due process is unhelpful and potentially misleading. misleading. The first thing to note is that although they are commonly called the due process clauses, these clauses actually have four words, not two. So it would be better to call them the due process of law clauses. The original meaning of the first two words, due process, specifies the requirement 
of a judicial proceeding of some kind prior to any deprivations of life, liberty, or property. On this, all who have studied the meaning of the term agree. Well, what they disagree about is the scope of this judicial inquiry, not its requirement. The due process of law is about a judicial process. The last two words of law clarifies this by connoting that a statute purporting to justify a deprivation of life, liberty, or property must be a valid law, which is within the constitutional power of the respective legislature to enact. Once it is acknowledged that the procedure or process by which the due process of law clause which the due process of law clause guarantees includes an opportunity to challenge the content or substance of a statute for its conformity with the Constitution, and that a statute that does not conform with the Constitution is not a constitutionally proper law, the utility of the distinction between substantive and procedural due process vanishes. Consider Commerce Clause challenge, what we call Commerce Clause challenges to legislation. I was just speaking of a couple of them a minute ago. We readily accept the fact that the due process of law provides a judicial forum to contest whether the substance of a federal statute exceeds Congress's power under the Commerce and Necessary and Proper Clauses. If it does, such a statute cannot be used to deprive somebody of life, liberty, or property because it is not a constitutionally proper law. As Chief Justice Marshall stated in McCulloch v. Maryland, quote, should Congress, under the pretext of exercising its powers, pass laws for the accomplishment of objects not entrusted to the government, it would become the painful duty of this tribunal, should a case requiring such a decision come before it, to say that such an act was not the law of the land. And the distinction between a mere legislative act and a law is pervasive in founding era sources and after the founding era. In other words, an unconstitutional statute is a mere legislative act rather than a binding law. Despite the role it is playing in providing a judicial form, the Fifth Amendment's due process of law clause disappears in such cases, and we speak only of the Commerce Clause. In sum, the core question in every case involving a purported deprivation of life, liberty, or property without due process of law is whether the person accused was guilty of violating a statute that was within the power of a legislature to enact. Answering this question always requires a judicial process by which the guilt or innocence of an accused is determined by a fair procedure. But it sometimes also requires an opportunity to challenge before a neutral tribunal whether the substance of a statute conflicts with the requirements of the higher law of the U.S. Constitution or with the Constitution of a state. In other words, sometimes the due process of law requires a judicial procedure designed to ensure that the substance of a statute conforms with the higher law of the land before any person can be deprived of his or her life, liberty, or property. The appropriate label for this process is not substantive due process, but the due process of law. The distinction between substantive and procedural due process is simply unhelpful. With this semantic critique of substantive due process out of the way, let me now turn to the original meaning of the term due process of law at the time of the founding and at the time the 14th Amendment was enacted, 
in 1868. While some originalists used to insist that a statute satisfied the due process of law if it received the requisite vote in the legislature, merely and only received the requisite vote in the legislature, there is a growing consensus that historically it sometimes required an inquiry into the substance of a law as well. As we've already seen, we've already seen how the due process of law authorizes a judicial assessment of whether a statute has exceeded the enumerated powers of Congress. This cannot be contested. There is also a consensus that a judicial inquiry is required when an act of Congress, uh, quote, appears on its face to be within a specific prohibition of the Constitution, such, of those, such as those of the first 10 amendments, as was famously affirmed, and I was just quoting from footnote four of U.S. v. Caroline Products, 1938 case. And most originalists today would also accept that most of these same guarantees are enforceable against the states via the due process of law clauses of the 14th Amendment. This is called, this modern doctrine is called incorporation. It's a bit anachronistic, but that's what it's called today, incorporation. These, these rights are incorporated into the due process clause, it said. The controversy surrounding modern substantive due process doctrine therefore concerns, not all I've just said there's consensus about, but whether the due process of law also entails a judicial scrutiny of legislation that may infringe an unenumerated right, such as a right of privacy that was protected in Griswold versus Connecticut, or the freedom of contract that was protected in Lochner v. New York. But while these, while these cases did protect liberties not enumerated in the Constitution, what I've said so far suggests that this is not the most illuminating way to frame the issue. The relevant issue is whether a law prohibiting bake shop employees from working more than 60 hours a week, or a law prohibiting a married couple from using contraception, is within the competence of state legislatures. To address that question, one needs a theory of the police power of states. Just as the Fifth Amendment's due process of law clause requires a judicial process to determine whether the substance of an act of Congress is calculated to carry into an effect an enumerated power, the due process of law clause in the 14th Amendment imposes limits on the ends which state legislatures may pursue. It is not enough that a state constitution authorizes a particular exercise of power. Such acts must also be consistent with Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, which stipulates that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. After the amendment was ratified in 1868, courts constructed a doctrine known as the Police Powers Doctrine to identify the scope of state legislative power. In his influential Treatise on the Constitutional Limitations which Rest Upon the Legislative Power of the United States of the American Union, published in 1868, Thomas McIntyre Cooley, the Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court and a professor at the University of Michigan Law School, as well as its dean, formulated the question confronting judges in any case involving a purported exercise of the police power as follows, quote, whether the state exceeds its just powers in dealing with the property and restraining the actions of individuals. And you may recognize that phrase, just powers, from the Declaration of Independence, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. It's the same phrase. What, are the, what were these just powers? What are these just powers? Cooley articulated this construction of the police power. Quote, the police of a state embraces its system of internal regulation 
by which it is sought not only to preserve the public order and to prevent offenses against the state, but also to establish for the intercourse of citizen with citizen those rules of good manners and good neighborhood, which are calculated to prevent a conflict of rights and to ensure to each the uninterrupted enjoyment of his own so far as is reasonably consistent with a like enjoyment of the rights of others. Cooley made no effort to create a comprehensive list of proper state powers, believing that one could not enumerate, quote, all of the various cases in which the exercise of one individual of his rights may conflict with a similar exercise by others. Instead, he focused on whether the state's actions were calculated to safeguard the rights of individuals. Consider the 1885 case of N. Ray Jacobs. The New York Court of Appeals, its highest court, invalidated a ban on tenement cigar making after determining that it was, quote, not a health law, unquote, and, quote, had no relation whatever to the public health, unquote. That the court regarded the ban as pretextual legislation can be gleaned from its declaration that, quote, under the mere guise of police regulations, personal rights and private property cannot be arbitrarily invaded. And its citation at that point to Chief Justice Marshall's language in McCulloch concerning pretext. Therefore, to give effect to the letter of the 14th Amendment's due process of law clause, we need an approach to adjudication by which federal and state judges can effectuate both the letter and the spirit, the original letter and the original spirit of the 14th Amendment by realistically assessing whether state legislatures are exercising their police powers in good faith. Such an approach would examine not evidence of, of, of legislators' subjective motivations, but the degree of fit between the means they adopted and a constitutionally permissible end in order to smoke out pretextual legislation that isn't really aimed at the ends that they purport to be aimed at. But what are the constitutionally permissible ends of state governments? I don't have time here today to provide a complete answer to this question now. Evan Burnick and I examine it at length in our article forthcoming really, really soon in the William & Mary Law Review. So let me merely observe that there, uh, let me really observe the degree of consensus that exists about this question before I identify one of the only major areas of disagreement. There is a universal consensus, both that state legislative power can be used to punish rights violations after they occurred, and that the police power allows for the regulation of behavior that risks rights, violating the rights of others, to prevent the violations from occurring. This latter type of regulation falls under the traditional rubric of regulations to protect the health and safety of the public. In addition, some authorities also included a third object or end of legislation, the protection of the public morals. But the meaning of this term, public morals, is ambiguous. Some of these laws, some such laws, would clearly be warranted under the rights-protective conception of the police power, and these would be laws that regulate conduct in the public sphere, that is, areas under the control of the government to which the general public has access, like streets, sidewalks, alleyways, and public parks. The legislature has a fiduciary duty to manage behavior that occurs in these spaces in a manner that facilitates its use by the general public, which includes its use by parents and their children. All of these exercises, all of these exercises of the state police powers were generally accepted in 1868 and remain so today. 
This leaves us with one last claim of a police power end that is in dispute, whether states may prohibit conduct performed in private and outside the view of the general public on the sole ground that the legislature deems such conduct to be immoral. Addressing the merits of this contested morals prong of the police power at length is just not possible in this time. But let me offer three brief observations about it before I close, and we can talk a little bit more about it in the Q&A if you're interested. First, again emphasizing consensus. Regardless of the view one takes on this issue, people of diverse first-order political philosophical views can agree that the rest of the legislative ends that I've mentioned, that is, protecting the public health and safety and regulating conduct in public spaces so as to minimize rights conflicts, are perfectly proper ends of state legislatures. So nothing prevents courts from using these ends in a means-ends analysis to identify arbitrary legislative acts that aren't really aimed at those ends, but are aimed at some impermissible end. Second, a power to regulate or prohibit private conduct outside of the spaces controlled by the government solely on the basis that it is immoral is not contained anywhere in the text of the Constitution, either expressly or by implication. If such a power exists, it exists because judges say it exists. That's not a deal breaker for me, but it's something that you should at least keep in mind when you address whether state legislatures have that power. Third, in our article, Evan Burnick and I maintain that the original spirit of the due process of law clauses was to bar the arbitrary exercise of government power. If this is our standard, then I doubt that the, the regulation of purely private acts solely on the basis of their alleged immorality can be non-arbitrary in practice. But I'm going to leave that claim to a Q&A if you're interested. I'm just going to close now by identifying a standard that all laws depriving any person of life, liberty, or property must satisfy, and it's this. Such laws must be rationally related to a legitimate or proper end of government. Such laws must be rationally related to a legitimate or proper end of government. Now, most of the lawyers in this room will recognize this as what is called the rational basis test. And you would be right. The standard I am proposing actually purports to be present-day doctrine. Unfortunately, since the 1955 Warren Court case of Williamson v. Lee Optical, however, unless a law is violating a judicially privileged fundamental right or discriminating against a judicially privileged suspect class, such laws will be upheld if a judge can imagine any conceivable basis why a legislature might have enacted it. That's the problem. That's the problem. Conceivable basis review of this type is an abdication of the judicial duty, not power, but duty, to ensure that no person be deprived of their life, liberty, or property, except by a valid exercise of a legitimate or proper state end. By substituting a formalist conceivable basis review from a realistic assessment of whether a law is irrational or arbitrary, Modern-day judges are failing to do their duty, and that includes conservative judges, are failing to do their duty as required by the original meaning of the due process of law. Thank you.
So it's great to be with everyone. It's always a pleasure for me in particular to be at the Bradley Foundation because it, like me, hails from uh, southeastern Wisconsin. Um, and I think I've, there's probably got to be a couple of Bradley Foundation folks in the room who are as delighted as I was to watch the Bucks game last night. So uh, here's to having Bucks in six take on new meaning. Um, you know, I was a pleasure to be uh, here and to, to hear Randy talk. Uh, there's part of me that sort of feels like as a former Justice Scalia clerk, I would have some sort of duty to sort of take on the judicial role and substantive due process. But fortunately for me, I see that Ed Whalen's here. Um, so, so I'm sure Ed will fulfill that, that, that duty in the Q&A, and I can move on to what I was going to say. So I'll, I'll, I'll jump right to that. Um, so I, I'm going to talk about sort of stare decisis from a lawyer's perspective, and the reason that lawyer's perspective is in the title is to sort of excuse me from the need to have a grand theory of stare decisis or what you know the proper role of stare decisis really ought to be. I'm going to talk about it really from more the perspective of the litigator, which in the Supreme Court means trying to get to five for your client. Um, so with that, with that caveat in mind, I, I want to start by talking about kind of the current Supreme Court. Uh, one of the oldest adages in Washington, D.C., is if you change one member of the Supreme Court, uh, you really get a whole new court. And I think that's actually generally true. I think people who are watching the court not as closely as Supreme Court litigators sometimes fail to appreciate how much the interpersonal dynamics of the justices make a huge difference as to how they decide cases and how they interact. Uh, you know, it's easy to look at the sort of you know, the job description of a Supreme Court justice and think, wow, that's a, that's a really great job in, in part because you have life tenure. But if you think about it in terms of basically being stuck with eight other people uh, that you didn't pick for the rest of your life. <laughs> so it's a fine line between life tenure and a life sentence. And, and so I, I do think even in a normal switch where it, the switch, it doesn't really affect the obvious balance of power on the Supreme Court or the ideological makeup of the Supreme Court, the adage is true. Just changing a single justice can really change the dynamic of the court in pretty important ways. I think in this particular most recent edition of A New Justice, though, uh, you really have this adage taking on really powerful meaning for two related reasons. I mean, one is the nature of the confirmation hearings. And I do think that the, the, nine, the other eight justices might have had slightly different perspectives on who was most to blame and what, you know, why the process got to where it has gotten. But I think all of the other eight justices looking at this process thought this really does not reflect well on the court as an institution. And so I think the fact that the, that the, that the confirmation hearings had the characteristics that they did has had a, an impact on the way the court is trying to operate, the way justices are interacting with each other. And so I do think that's a particular uh, aspect of this particular switch of a justice. The second thing, and this is maybe the most obvious point, is, you know, we've gotten used to a series of changes of personnel on the Supreme Court in recent years that haven't really changed where the court is on important issues. And, you know, especially, you know, given some of the nominations in the past where presidents got justices that behaved very differently 
from what the president had in mind when they made the nomination. You know, some, one of the most interesting things about the last, say, you know, four or five nominations before Justice Kavanaugh is that the, the presidents have pretty much gotten the justice they were looking for, and the court's overall sort of trajectory hasn't changed that much because you've basically had more or less like-for-like like switches. And I, I, I suppose of the recent appointments until Justice Kavanaugh, the most consequential change was Justice Alito for Justice O'Connor. But the other ones really were almost pure like-for-like like switches. And so the fact that Justice Kennedy is replacing Justice Kavanaugh certainly does have the prospect of being a more dramatic change in the trajectory of the court. I think court watchers have gotten used to probably going back 40 or 50 years to trying to identify who is the swing justice. And for the last decade, that's been pretty obviously Justice Kennedy. And I think before that, it was pretty obviously Justice O'Connor, and one could go back even further. I think in the search for the swing justice on the current court, I'm not sure there is one. And that isn't to say that I don't think there's the fifth justice whose vote is most likely to be the one that a lawyer has to be most focused on in trying to get to five. But I don't think it's right to think of that justice as a swing justice. So the justice I have in mind is perhaps not surprisingly the chief justice. And I don't think it, it's really right to think about him as a swing justice in the sense of you know, his vote really being up for grabs and even sort of how he is going to think about a legal issue going to be sort of swinging from one side to the other. I think the right way to think about the chief justice is less as a swing justice and more as a governor switch or a regulator who will be the justice that determines how quickly the court moves in one direction or another and how quickly the court is willing to, and boldly, the court is willing to revisit certain areas or stay a course that at least five justices may actually think isn't exactly the right course but the Chief Justice in particular may be concerned about overturning past precedent of the Supreme Court. And that's why I think that the issue of stare decisis is so important uh, from a litigator's perspective and thinking about what the Supreme Court uh, is going to look like in the years going forward. And so I'd, I'd say really a couple of things about this. One is that Part of the reason that this is important and controversial and probably does dictate how quickly the court moves gets back to that confirmation process. I mean, every one of the justices that goes through that confirmation process gets asked over and over again about stare decisis and precedent and super-duper precedent and all the rest. And so I do think there's kind of a natural reluctance to, you know, once you've gone through that process, to then immediately switch gears and immediately adopt Justice Thomas's view of stare decisis, which is essentially, if it's wrong, we should overrule it. Um, but, and and the, the other second point I'd make about why this is so front and center in thinking about the court going forward is this is obvious from this term before the Supreme Court. There's, by my count, at least four cases where the Supreme Court has directly in front of it, the question of whether to overrule one of its precedents. 
Um, and there's, that really understates it. But there's four where it's literally like the question presented is, should the court overrule its precedent in fill in the blank? And so that's the Nick case involving uh, a takings clause issue that's being ably litigated by the Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, the Hyatt case involving state sovereign immunity. Uh, a case about the separate sovereigns exception to the double jeopardy clause and a case involving administrative law, which may provide a, a, a helpful segue, but uh, as to whether or not to overrule the so-called Our Doctrine or Seminole Rock Doctrine. Um, so four cases where it's squarely presented. Um, one interesting fact that all four of those cases have in common is that the Supreme Court hasn't decided them yet, even though it's relatively late in the term, and some of these cases were uh, argued relatively early in the term. Uh, most intriguingly, of course, is the Nick case, which was argued at the very beginning of the term, even before Justice Kavanaugh was finally confirmed, and then had to be re-argued later in the term, presumably because the justices were evenly split about what to do with their prior precedent in uh, the Williamson County case. So this will be an important theme that the Supreme Court has in this term. This term isn't the most otherwise kind of interesting term in terms of having lots of headline-grabbing blockbuster cases. There's actually something to be said for that. Uh, but I think in watching the returns of the court this term and what it says for the future of the court, there may be very little you can do that's more effective than paying attention to those four cases where stare decisis is front and center and see how the court decides those cases and how they divide I'll go out on a limb here and say I'm quite sure they're not going to overrule all four cases. I'd be surprised if they didn't overrule at least one of them. And so I think sort of which one they decide to overrule and why that one and not the others and what the various justices say about that I think will be profoundly important in terms of measuring the trajectory of the court going forward. As I said, I think four really uh, understates the matter. Um, there's a fifth case, which is the partisan gerrymandering case, where I suppose you could say part of the question is whether the court should overrule Davis v. Vandermeer. Um, we did not put that question. I was involved in the litigation of that case. We did not put that question front and center. And that's a segue to the final thing I want to talk about is from a litigator's perspective, if you are trying to litigate a case where there is a precedent of the Supreme Court uh, that you think is wrongly decided and is in the way of your client getting to the victory circle, how do you deal with that fact? And so I'd offer three observations that seem to me to be good advice for litigators in dealing with stare decisis issues in the current Robert court, Roberts Court. Um, the first is, as a general matter, I think about asking the court to overrule one of its cases as kind of break glass in case of emergency. Um, you shouldn't be afraid to do it. I mean, there are emergencies, but it should not be, as a general matter, your litigation strategy of first resort. Um, I have, you know, effectively written a 60-page brief that didn't mention the idea of overruling one of the court's cases until about page 57, and they actually did it in that case. But it, 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 it just goes to show that you ought to give the court lots of lots of reasons to think that you're right before you then say, oh, and this previous turn that you took in the opposite direction was not just wrong, but so manifestly wrong that you should overturn it. Uh, the second piece of advice, which directly follows from that page allocation in the brief I mentioned, is 
There's no particular need to dwell on the matter or wrap yourself around the axle in arguing the various factors that the court from time to time has articulated as being the basis for when it will overturn its decisions. I mean, I I certainly think it's important to nod in the direction of those factors and to cite your favorite case. Uh, Payne v. Tennessee is one that, you know, kind of nicely articulates the factors, and the court did, in fact, overturn one of its cases, so it gets to the the right place at the end of the day. And you certainly have to understand that considerations like reliance, interest, and the workability of the test in practice and the like are useful. But I think it's a mistake to think that the court is so sort of consistent about how it thinks about stare decisis factors that the way to really kind of win one of these cases is to really convince them that the three or four factors articulated in Payne v. Tennessee all cut in your favor. I think you can do essentially all you need to do in about three pages at the end of your brief. And then the last piece of advice I would offer is, and I think this is particularly true in the current court and particularly true with Chief Justice Roberts, is Keep in mind that this is a long-term objective. I mean, don't think that you will necessarily overturn a precedent that is in the way of where you want to go in your first crack at the case. And I think one of the things that is really a discernible methodology of Chief Justice Roberts in particular when it comes to matters of stare decisis is his favorite methodology seems to be to essentially chip away at cases in various steps so that the day that the case is actually overruled, it's, it's, it's really not even news. It's, it's been coming for a couple of years, and its demise was so you know, earlier predicted that it's, just, it's not a big deal. Of course they overturned Austin against Michigan in Citizens United. I mean, they signaled that in an earlier case. They signaled that through re-argument of the case to focus specifically on that question. And then when it happens, of course it happened. I mean, of course, of course that case was overruled. You saw this in the last couple of terms with Abood as well in the public sector union context. I mean, the court chipped away on that. They had a prior case involving Illinois where they all but overruled Abood. Uh, You know, because of of Justice Scalia, the timing of Justice Scalia's passing, uh, they had an argument to overrule it, and then that had to be essentially put on hold for a couple of years. And so, my goodness, by the time they overruled last term, uh, it was the oldest news in town. So I do think that with respect to stare decisis in the current court, uh, it, it pays to take the long view and have a long-term project of taking down the case that, that, that you have in your sights. So thank you very much. Good afternoon, or actually late morning. Um, I want to um, say that I'm honored to be able to participate in a Bradley Symposium, and uh, I'm glad to see that there are so many people here to talk about something as interesting as administrative law. (laughs) Um, I have to say that the title of my talk today is very similar to, in fact, is the title of the book I'm going to talk about, Judicial Fortitude, The Last Chance to Reign in the Administrative State. I have to say that because the publisher of the book is going to get a Bradley Bradley Prize tonight, (laughs) and he's sitting right over there. So um, you'll hear a part of this book, but uh, there's a lot more to it. Um, The reason, I think, 
that conservatives should be concerned about the growth of the administrative state is not simply our respect for the Constitution. The vital fact is that the administrative state is a direct threat to the representative democracy in this country and should be viewed in that light. If the drift toward lawmaking by administrative agencies continues as it has since the New Deal, at some point in the future, the American people are going to realize that the rules they have to live under are being made by an unelected bureaucracy in Washington and not by the Congress that they vote for every couple of years. We know what happens then. We have a recent example in Brexit where the British people voted to leave the EU in large part because they were subject to regulations coming out of Brussels over which they had no control. Brexit was simply a statement that a majority of the British people no longer considered the EU to be a legitimate government. In the same way, and for the same reasons, as I wrote in Judicial Fortitude, the American people's recognition that their government is in fact beyond their control and, and will be a threat um, to them as a lawmaker is a source and threat to the legitimacy of the U.S. government. And without legitimacy, governments do not have the moral authority to demand obedience to the laws. So for the sake of the U.S. government's legitimacy in the future, it is important that we find a way to control the inexorable growth and power, uh, uh, growth in the power of the administrative state. The underlying reason that agencies of the administrative state have grown to their current state of dominance, and this was suggested in this morning's earlier panel, is that the Congress has stopped performing its constitutional role as the legislature. Legislatures are supposed to make the major choices for society, who is benefited, who is burdened, who pays the cost, but Congress has found that it can get credit from the voters if it passes things, passes law that essentially nothing more than a goal setting. So Congress passes the Clean Water Act and simply sets a goal of clean water. When a constituent complains that his use of his farm pond is now subject to regulation by the EPA, his representative or a senator says, I didn't vote for that. That's that out-of-control EPA again. Um, the constituent doesn't realize that Congress gave the EPA the power to make these key decisions about the scope of the Clean Water Act. And instead of taking those difficult, instead of taking those difficult decisions itself. In other words, since the New Deal, and increasingly today, the administrative state has grown larger and more powerful because Congress has handed over to the agencies larger and larger portions of its own legislative authority. Sadly, the courts have assisted in this process especially the Supreme Court's 1984 Chevron decision. That ruling directed lower courts, all of you know this, of course, to defer to agency views about their authority if 
the agency has considered, has taken steps that the court thinks uh, are reasonable in terms of the, of the powers that the agency has been given under congressional policy. This gave agencies enormous latitude to expand their reach, including by adopting interpretations of statutes uh, that were already on the books. As a result, in the last 25 years, the agencies of the administrative state have issued more than 3,000 rules in every year for a total of over 101,000 rules in 25 years. The framers created a constitution with separated powers for a specific reason. Their view was that if the power to make laws and to enforce laws were held by the same person or group, that was the source of tyranny. That's why all lawmaking power was vested in Congress, uh, which was, of course, a representative body, and was to be completely separated from the enforcement power of the executive branch. However, the broad powers of Congress, uh, the, the broad powers that Congress has been giving to the agencies of the administrative state are a clear violation of the constitutional structure. The power to both make the laws and to enforce the laws is now very often held by the same group of people, that is, the agencies of the administrative state. This is not only a violation of the framers' intent, but as I noted earlier, it will inevitably lead to the government's loss of legitimacy. Now, how can we right this ship? I believe the current Supreme Court, with its majority of conservatives and constitutionalists, is the answer. Not only do these justices respect the Constitution and the need for the separation of powers, but the Supreme Court has a duty, a duty to correct violations of the constitutional structure. In Federalist 78, Alexander Hamilton said that the judiciary was intended to be the guardian of the Constitution. And judges were given lifetime appointments so they could stand up to the more powerful elected branches when the elected branches were engaged in changing the way the Constitution was supposed to operate. Life tenure, said Hamilton, was necessary to give the judges and justices fortitude for this task. But in almost 250 years since the Constitution was ratified, the Supreme Court has never developed a way to determine whether Congress has delegated legislative authority to the executive branch. That would be what I would call a jurisprudence of non-delegation. And that is the way, for example, uh, the court has always dealt with search and seizure. Search and seizure. What does that mean in the Constitution? Well, we didn't really know until the court started deal with, dealing with case after case so that now the, uh, even a foot patrolman can be explained, can be told by the, his leaders what he can do when he stops a car. That was the result of a jurisprudence on that issue, case after case being reviewed by the court. That has never been done by this court 
on the question of non-delegation. Most of its decisions have approved delegation, and many scholars have concluded that the non-delegation doctrine that I'm talking about here, with which the court could invalidate unconstitutional delegations of legislative authority, is now dead. The only time that the Supreme Court even tried to carry out its constitutional duty was in 1935, when it invalidated two laws that it believed had delegated legislative power to the president. But after FDR won a smashing victory in the 1936 election, he retaliated against the court with a plan for him to appoint seven new justices and, in effect, take control of the court. This court pack, packing, packing plan, as it is known, was unpopular with the public, and it was never passed by Congress. But it appeared to cow the court, which has never again declared a law unconstitutional because it delegated excessive legislative authority to the executive. Instead, the court has continued to allow Congress to give broad powers to executive agencies, powers, for example, to regulate in the public interest or impose rules that are fair and reasonable. These decisions, what is included in public interest or what is fair and reasonable, are decisions for a legislature, not for unelected bureaucrats. Yet, the only way that we will ever be able to regain control over the administrative state is through the willingness of the Supreme Court to decide that Congress has delegated its legislative power to one or more of these agencies. We cannot expect Congress on its own to rein in the administrative state. It will not give up its ability to avoid difficult decisions by handing these decisions to administrative agencies. But if the Supreme Court assumes the role that the framers assigned to them as the guardian of the Constitution, it can force Congress to do its job. How? By restoring the non-delegation doctrine and invalidating laws that delegate authority to uh, legislative authority to the executive branch. With several such decisions, Congress will realize that it must make the difficult legislative decisions that it has been avoiding all along. Now, the court is aware of this authority and responsibility. In a 2013 case, this is the city of Arlington case, in which Justice Roberts, in dissent, cast some doubt on Chevron, he also said this, the obligation of the judiciary not only to confine itself to its prop is not only to confine itself to its proper role, but to ensure that the other branches do so as well. This is a restatement of Hamilton's position in Federalist 78 that the court has the duty to stand up to the elected branches when they threaten the structure of the Constitution. And I want to say something else about Roberts in this context, because I know that many conservatives, because of his, uh, some of his votes uh, in the Obamacare cases, uh, question his uh, steadiness. But in fact, that quote that I provided 
shows that on questions of the structure of the Constitution, he's right on target. And he has put himself in a position where he can make a major decision. And I, I'm surprised that there hasn't been more discussion today of the Gundy case, which was argued in the Supreme Court on October 2, again before Kavanaugh was confirmed and had taken his oath of office, and has still not been decided. But the Gundy case is a clear non-delegation case. And if the court decides that, uh, and it looks as though they probably will, because otherwise they would have asked for re-argument, um, in that case, um, we will have the beginning of a jurisprudence of non-delegation. So it's a major issue uh, to be looking for in, in the future. This is a, as, as a restatement of Hamilton's position that the court has a duty to stand up to the elected branches when they threaten the structure of the Constitution. This is exactly what uh, I think Chief Justice Roberts was looking at. He's now joined by four other justices who consider themselves constitutionalists, we can all name them, and should be willing to restore the dormant non-delegation doctrine. In other words, this is time for judicial fortitude. Thank you. We do still have time for just a couple of, of questions. Ed, Ed, Ed Whalen. Uh, thanks. Since uh, Paul has asked me to, I will um, pose a uh, question along with a comment for Randy. Randy, when it comes to um, substantive due process, a term which I agree can be misused in a lot of ways, the, the real battle, of course, is over unenumerated rights, not over whether the uh, challenge to a uh, under a commerce clause can be reconceived of as a as a due process challenge, and so the question really becomes in the phrase due process of law, what is the of law when you're speaking of a so-called um, uh, unenumerated right? Is there any law there at all? And in your examples of uh, basically challenging uh, state police power. You uh, invoked a state Supreme Court justice in Michigan and the state Supreme Court in New York, which I think leads to the observation that it's really a matter of state authority to determine what state legislative power is, broadly speaking, obviously subject to federal constitutional limitations. But it would seem that you are trying to use um, principles that state courts have developed uh, to, in some cases, limit uh, state legislative power to uh, and importing those into the due process clause to impose some sort of general federal constitutional limit that would actually intrude on uh, core police power. So I'd be interested in your response to that. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Ed. Um, the difference between a, a – I mean, the simplest way to understand the difference between a, a law and a mere legislative act – uh, is a mere legislative act uh, is arbitrary. And by arbitrary, it means it's justified only by the will of the lawmaker or the actor, not by a reason that is within the proper competence of that legislature or actor to act. So it's not irrational in the sense that, you know, they want to help out their favorite guys or they've been paid off 
with a bribe, going back to an earlier panel. They're, they're acting rationally, but they're not acting within the scope of the powers that they've been delegated. And so the question is whether there's any constraint on that. The due process of law requires a judicial uh, hearing in which you can challenge the law as being a mere arbitrary act or an act that is has been enacted according to a proper end or power. And then the debate should be not about what rights we have, because um, this is all about deprivation of life, liberty, or property, which the Constitution expressly protects. But what is the proper ends that legislatures may enact? And state legislatures are legislatures of general powers as opposed to the federal government, which is a legislature of enumerated powers. And then you need a theory of what those general powers are, which is why we looked to state courts in order to provide that theory of what the general powers of states are. In the case of Thomas Cooley, it's not exactly fair to talk about him as merely a state Supreme Court justice because he was the most influential legal theorist of the late 19th century by a wide margin and known to be such um, at the time. He's not known today because his ideas were repudiated by the progressives. Um, and then he was thought to be a bad guy. But he's somebody who, whose name needs to be revived, which is why the Georgetown Center for the Constitution now has an annual Cooley lecture, a Cooley judicial lecture to honor his memory and a Cooley book prize to honor his memory as a scholar. Um, so uh, you're, you're right. Uh, the New York State Court of Appeals, which is what I cited, has, has had a, a, adopted Cooley in that, that approach of what a police power is. And the only point here is really very simple. To say that the states are, are governments of general powers is not to say that they are governments of unlimited powers. You still have to have a theory, because an, a government of unlimited powers is a tyranny, and nobody in a Republican form of government believes that legislatures have all powers. The Declaration refers to only their just powers. And so there's just no avoiding having a theory of this. And I guess I'll just close by reiterating what I said in my talk. Mostly we agree about the scope of these powers. There is some disagreement at the margin about important issues. I, I identified the one, which is to do with the regulation of purely private morality that is outside the, uh, the, the purview of the general public and doesn't affect the rights of other people. That's a matter of disagreement. doesn't mean that I'm right about it and, and the other people are wrong, but that's merely what we're disagreeing about. But we have a general agreement about everything else. There is probably one other area that nowadays there is some disagreement. There's even a circuit split on this, and that is whether it's appropriate legislative power just to help to use their powers just to help out their regulatory powers to help out some industries as opposed to others, to help out the favorite groups um, as opposed to other groups, is whether that's a legitimate state power. And, and some circuit, well, at least one circuit has said it's not. A couple circuits have said it is. That should need, need to be resolved. But those, we're, we're arguing at the margin, not at the core. At the core, I think there should be a consensus that the due process of law requires an inquiry into the substance of laws to see if it's within the proper powers of the legislature to enact. Paul or Peter Eddy, any of that? Okay, I, I'm sorry, that had to be the last question. We, uh, we got a late start, and we need to go to the uh, next panel. So we get a round of applause for our panelists.
All right, <clears throat> our uh, third and final panel is on the problem of illegal immigration. And uh, we're going to start with Michael Anton on a question of sovereignty. Uh, he's a lecturer in politics and a research uh, fellow at Hillsdale College's Allen Kirby Jr. Center for Constitutional Studies and Citizenship in Washington, D.C. In fact, it happens to be across the street from the uh, Heritage Foundation. Uh, he's also a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. Uh, he's a former deputy assistant to President Trump and served in the national security area uh, of both uh, Donald Trump and the George W. Bush administrations. And I, I think, uh, Michael, if I remember correctly, I think he wrote an article about this issue and the uh, social media world descended on you uh, over that, the, which is, I think, the modern equivalent of the old American tradition of tarring, feathering, and riding somebody out of town on a rail. Um, John Eastman uh, will be talking about this issue, too. And, uh, John, I, I think you do get credit for coming up with the most unique title, uh, Born in the USA, question <laughs> mark. Uh, John is the Henry Salvatore Professor of Law and Community Service and former dean of the Chapman, Chapman University School of Law uh, in California. He leads the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence at the Claremont Institute. Uh, he's the chairman of the board of the National Organization for Marriage, and he's also uh, the chairman of the Federalist Society's Federation and Separation of Powers Practice Group. Although, ooh, I, I don't think I was supposed to say that, right? Because doesn't the New York Times say the Federalist Society is ultra-secret organization? <laughs> A little small group. Yeah, yeah right. Um, he clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas and practiced law with Kirkland and Ellis also. Uh, Michael, you're up. Uh, I first want to say how much I appreciate some of the apocalypticism of the earlier speakers. <laughs> I'm very used to going to gatherings like this and everybody says, well, we may have one or two problems, but really it's all going to be fine. Don't worry. And I see a looming cliff, and I think uh, I'm either crazy or these people are. So uh, I, I like that. It's like a little it's a fresh dose of realism, a little splash in the face that uh, helps wake one up and keep one spry. Uh, regarding being uh, run out of town on the rail, I'm, I'm reminded of a famous comment of Lincoln's. I forgot of whom he said it, but it you know, some couldn't have been social media in those days, but some controversy erupted, and Lincoln said, I'm reminded of the man who was... Uh, tarred, feathered, and ridden out of his town on a rail who said, were it not for the honor of the thing, I had rather walk. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my topic is unilateral disarmament. Now you think, well, what does this have to do with nuclear weapons? That's not why we invited you here. No, it is not why you invited me here, and I do like to, one thing I do tend to do, if anyone invites me somewhere, I play my assigned role. So, for instance, I was invited to a college a little while ago, and I wrote a somewhat provocative talk. And I, I got up there. I kind of chickened out when I got in front of the audience. I was there. I was looking out at them. And the guy said, this is a really liberal place, you know. I said, yeah, I, I get it. And I toned it down in the speech. And then afterward, we went, all went out to dinner. And he said, you know, you kind of let me down a bit. I said, why did I leave? I said, I'm sorry, but what did I do? He said, you weren't very provocative at all. 
uh, you, you know, the students weren't even really mad at you. So, all right, I guess I failed to play my assigned role in that case. So unilateral disarmament, what do I mean by that? I mean, the, the conservative intellectual movement, I think, has unilaterally disarmed itself in the immigration debate. And why have they done that? Because they accept premise after premise after premise, all of them false, from the left that say, if, we're, if we believe in the American idea, if we believe in the Constitution and the Declaration and so on, we can't be for any limits. We just can't. We don't, you know. And so they're getting consistently beaten uh, in this debate in ways that the first panel showed in all kinds of practical detail. And I think that pra the, those practical defeats stem from the intellectual and principled unilateral disarmament that I talked about. There are um, uh, a couple phrases that I think the conservatives would do well to retire, and one of them is, America is an idea, not a country. Really? I have to cross the border every once in a while. I do get stopped. My passport is asked to be checked. I look at maps. There are lines that one says there's a country on this side of it, and there's a country on that side of it, and neither one of them is the United States of America. So where does this come from? Well, it comes from language in the Declaration of Independence and from the founders. Now, why did they state things the way they stated it that leads our intellectuals falsely to believe that American is, is an idea? I'm not saying that there is no American idea. I'm saying that this oversimplification that America is only an idea is a big source of rot that we have in the conservative intellectual movement. Where does it come from? It comes from the founders finding, our founders finding themselves in a, a difficult and unprecedented political situation in which they had to grope for and articulate a new basis for political legitimacy. In fact, the very opening of the Federalist Papers, um, uh, Federalist One, remarks on this unprecedented state in saying that, you know, it has been left uh, to us to decide whether governments are always going to be established by accident and force or reflection and choice. Uh, in other words, they're saying we're going to have to get, for the, essentially for the first time in human history, get together, talk about how we're going to establish this government and on what basis. In light of the world, yes, I'm leaving out the fact that the Constitutional Convention was secret as it happened, but you notice that all their notes were subsequently published, as was the document. In full um, uh, light of the world, everyone's going to see what we did and why we did it, and they're going to interpret our reasons. Now, the basis of political legitimacy prior to this had never been that. You ask yourself, why is France France? Why is England England? Or any other country you can name. And historians can write thousand-page book, thousand books on this and never get to the answer. So we sort of know first there were the Gauls, and then they were conquered by the, by the Romans, and then there was the Franks, and so on. And it was a long, complex history, and somehow France is France at some point. But nobody can point to, unless you want to count Bastille Day, but there's certainly a thousand <laughs> years of France before that or longer. Nobody can point to uh, a, a 1776 or 1787 moment when a people say, we are this people defined in this way, and the people out there are not this people. You don't have that. It's, it's implied somehow, and, and the origins of it are murky. We have that in the United States. Notice, though, that in stating the universal truths that the founders used to justify their act of rebellion and their act of founding a new country, they never say, they say these truths are universal. Uh, they never say, however, that that universal truth uh, obviates or in some way makes impossible a border. In fact, the very, everybody remembers the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident and so on. Let's remember the first paragraph where they say, we're separating ourselves from another people and becoming a distinct people. We are one people, but there are other peoples in the world. 
right? This is all goes all the way back. I'm gonna use impolite language. I'm sorry to do it, but it is there in political philosophy. You know, um, even someone as high-minded and universalistic as Plato himself would use the term friend versus enemy. Now, it's not to say that all foreigners or non-citizens are enemies, but they are non-citizens. They are distinct, right? Even Plato's famous best regime or city in speech, which is supposed to be based on universal principle, has a border. It's separated off from the cities that surround it, and it is assumed that uh, interests will collide and not necessarily always mesh, and that sometimes there might even be hostilities, right? So I, um, in addition to the article mentioned that caused a bit of a stir, I had an opportunity to cause another stir last year. I doubt I'm ever going to get it again. Um, where the Washington Post came to me and said, "You know, we've heard that you know we need these we need more people who are sort of conservative but sympathetic to Trump to write from us for us." And others have told us maybe you should do that. I said, "Sure, well, I'm happy to do that." Um, so I wrote a couple of pieces about immigration that made everybody very very angry. And the Washington Post subsequently, well, they lost interest in publishing me again. Um, <laughs> now, what did I say? I said uh, fundamentally two things. Uh, one is that immigration policy should be based on the national interest of the citizens already constituted in the citizen body, right? Um, and this, of course, caused a stir because it's taken for granted that it's always in, you know, the, oh, that, that's the second conservative, the second phrase conservative needs to retire, so if you guys are keeping score. First one is America is an idea, not a country. The second one is we're a nation of immigrants. Need to retire that. Now, what do I mean by retire that? I'm actually a descendant of Ellis Island immigrants, so you can say I'm betraying my heritage and so on. That statement is partly true, but remember it's weaponized by the left to mean you can have no objection to any limitations on immigration whatsoever. You're not even allowed to object to a border wall, border security, interior enforcement, because we're a nation of immigrants, therefore we're sort of required to allow anybody, despite what the present citizenry believes. Now, the American founders would say, and I think this is the only consistent way to look at it, immigration policy should be based on uh, a deliberative process that determines what is in the best interest of the currently constituted citizenry. So if the citizens get together and say, we think we're underpopulated and we need more people, or they could say, we think we need you know, certain uh, professions that we're lacking in and there are people overseas who have this kind of training or who have this kind of background and they want to come here and we ought to look at that. Or they could say right now, gosh, we have a really a lot of people and wages are, are, are low, and the country's crowded, and we need to cut back for right now. Um, in any democratic theory that's consistent with the government the founders set up, of course the people have a right to so decide, to so enact. Um, that is not the way the modern left, the modern intelligentsia, and really the broad center views it right now. I think if you asked altogether too many people, when we see this polled, we do know that for a long time the American citizenry has said, uh, we think immigration levels are too high. We'd like to see them come down. Uh, that is conflicted with the fact that if you also poll, if you say, you know, do, do we have the right to do that or are we constitutionally required to keep the border open or at least have very lax enforcement and so on? A lot of people believe that that's true. So I was asked, my talk is supposedly about sovereignty, and it is, I'm, I'm getting there. Um, what does sovereignty really mean? Well, it does mean that you are, at, in the first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, we say we're splitting off. We are, we are one people, we are defining ourselves as a people. In part, we define ourselves as distinct from other peoples. It means we are sovereign. The British crown nor any other foreign power outside our physical territory has sovereignty over us. We get to decide our collective destiny for ourselves. That's the basic definition of sovereignty, not just here, but 
it's the basis of sovereignty in the international system for every country. Okay, well, that means you get to decide your collective destiny over a a full range of policies, economic policy, foreign policy, trade policy, and of course immigration policy, which is one of the most fundamental policies of all because it's a a policy about who constitutes the people. Um, So the American, to just delve slightly more into the theory here, when the Declaration of Independence says that we separate ourselves um, and we become one distinct people, essentially what they're enacting, and they say this all throughout, uh, the founding documents. They say we're enacting a social compact, that the basis of a government is a social compact. We get together, a people gets together and says, we're going to form a government to protect our interests in the negative sense, meaning protect ourselves from depredation, invasion, and so on, but also to promote our collective well-being, um, to promote the common good. Um, you know, take the, the preamble to the Constitution as the premier sort of statement of that sentiment. Okay. That social compact, though, is, in a, is, is binding to those who enact it, and um, it, it, it's exclusive. You can't join the social compact against the will of the pre-existing members of the compact. This is why, for instance, um, you have a distinction in the American Revolution between uh, so-called patriots and loyalists, right? The loyalists are the people who reject the new compact. I don't want to be part of this government. I reject the legitimacy of the break from Britain, and uh, I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to go into either back to Britain or I'm going to go to Canada into territory where Britain still controls. These are people who reject the compact. They're not therefore citizens. By definition, social compact theory is incomprehensible if anyone can join the compact against the wishes of those already in the compact. Um, that's essentially what illegal immigration is. It is an, it is an attempt unenforced on our side, at least lately, um, and, a, and a successful, it's not even an attempt, it's a successful effort to join the compact against the wishes, or if not against the wishes, at least without consulting the wishes of the people already members of the compact. And I find that to be, I think the founders would have found that to be, and I think the drafters of the 14th Amendment, as John and I have written about extensively and he'll talk about more, would have found that to be um, incomprehensible and internally contradictory. Um, So American sovereignty, then, not merely implies but requires control over your own borders, control over uh, who is a citizen. The ancient definition of a citizen would have always have been born to a citizen mother and a citizen father. Um, The United States had to resolve this question um, in 1865 because of the confusing and difficult case of what to do about freed slaves. This is the basis of the 14th Amendment, which, of course, actually grows out of prior legislation, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, that was considered to be insufficient because it wasn't enshrined in the Constitution. Here you had, as of 1865, a large population of people who were born in the United States, knew no other homeland, had nowhere else to go. Um, You could not say that they were the citizens or the part of the social compact of any other country, nor could you have said prior to emancipation that they were citizens of the social compact of this country. In fact, you had states that denied it, and you had the Supreme Court decision that said they could not be. What to do, how to resolve this question. And you get from that Civil Rights Act of 1866 and then the 14th Amendment, the first clause of which uh, repeats the Civil Rights Act of 1866 almost word for word. Um, 
that resolves the question of freedmen on exactly the same basis I'm talking about. The people who drafted that amendment knew what they were doing. They're saying, we, the, citizen, the democratically constituted citizens of the United States, through a democratic process, are admitting into the social compact by our via our democratic will people that weren't a part of it before. And we're, we're doing that, you know, they, first they did it by legislation, and the reason the 14th, one of the reasons the 14th Amendment gets enacted is you had some... Um, who did not want to see freedmen become citizens, say, well, that's just a law. The Constitution supersedes the law, and the Dred Scott decision of 1857 says that uh, no black person, even a free black person, can ever be a citizen of the United States. And since that's a, a decision of the Supreme Court, it supersedes the statute law, to which the uh, framers of the 14th Amendment said, okay, if you want to play it that way, we'll just take this and we'll put it right in the Constitution, and then that will supersede Dred Scott and overturn Dred Scott we will settle this matter forever, which is exactly what they did. Um, that has subsequently, the 14th Amendment, as John will argue, um, and I have argued in print, I can point you to the things to read if you want to read them, the 14th Amendment has subsequently been misinterpreted to essentially say that uh, the compact is wide open. All you got to do is make it across the border, and at a minimum, you know, have, have this is where the um, birthright clause comes in, have a baby, and even without the consent of the currently constituted citizens, that person is a citizen. As we have argued and continue to argue and fight this fight, that's not what was intended by the 14th Amendment. Uh, it's, it's easy to prove that that was not what was intended by the 14th Amendment simply by quoting the people who wrote it and the people who voted on it. But it's also, again, back to playing my assigned role, I think it's also easy to prove by just pointing out how completely incoherent that concept is. If anybody... Again, if anybody can join the compact against the will or regardless of the will of the people in the compact, you don't have a compact. And if you don't have a compact, what is the basis for American government? What is the basis for the legitimacy of the American government that the American founders asserted in 1776? I think it becomes not merely eroded, but exploded. So this is a, the state of the Constitution is the title of this conference. I think it's imperiled in a lot of ways. As I said, I, I, I was um, encouraged by a little of the apocalypticism. I think it's warranted. I think we all should be a bit more scared than we are, and I hope that that uh, fear and uneasiness moves us to uh, exert ourselves to a greater degree. But one of the ways that the state of the Constitution is frazzled right now is we interpret it to mean something that it not only doesn't say, but it couldn't possibly say. We interpret it essentially to mean that American citizenship has no meaning or no content because it's open to all, uh, regardless of the will of the existing American citizenry. And if that is the case, then the American, in principle, American citizenry is open to the entire world. Um, you know, I think we know practically where that would lead. And I, that's my final point, which is it's a very practical point, is very few other countries do this. Um, when I got into the uh, meat of this argument, I researched it, and you know, depending on how you count, but let's I'm going to use the number 197, which I can back up. So there are 197 countries in the world. You would count that as UN members, observer states, and a couple other things. 197 uh, of those, I think it's about 83% do not honor any concept of birthright citizenship. Um, of those countries that have gone the other way, that used to honor it and have decided to either restrict it or cancel it. Since uh, 1983, when things started to go in the other direction, nine have gotten rid of it. Zero have adopted it. So we're a global outlier 
on this question. I think because the rest of the world knows it's a dumb idea and it doesn't work. We're a global outlier, though, in another way, which is um, we're the only country with a very high per capita income and a highly productive economy that, that offer, the only other one that would fall into that category would be Canada, but we're the only one with a very high per capita income and a very productive economy that directly borders not merely one country that with a far lower per capita income, but an entire region with a far lower per capita income. Nobody else does what we're doing. And it's not working out in the interests of American citizenry. I think we see that in practical ways every day, in every way. You know, we've been told lately there's no crisis at the southern border, even though the border agents who try to police it will tell you otherwise. Um, but leaving aside the practicalities, getting right back, and I'm, I'm ending here, getting right back to where I began, the reason I think we have pr the practical difficulties is because we've disarmed ourselves to the theoretical or the logical reasons why it's okay to think that protecting your own citizens, protecting your own constitution, your own laws, and your own border is good. And it's another example of why Ideas, in particular, bad ideas have consequences. Bad ideas leave one disarmed and unable to take a stand for things that we know are in our interests and we know are right, but that we somehow feel guilty about or feel incapable of doing because of the bad ideas. So my, my main thought that I would like to leave you with is, it is a bad idea, so let's get rid of it. Let's be able to proudly say, unapologetically say, and unhesitatingly say that it is right and just and logically sound and moral and consistent with the founding and consistent with the 14th Amendment that America can have a border, America can um, place lawful, reasonable restrictions on immigration, and those lawful, reasonable restrictions can be debated and enacted by democratic majorities. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks to the Bradley Foundation for uh, this wonderful conference and inviting me to participate. Um, I was a little nervous uh, this week when Google started shutting down the Claremont Institute, whether we'd be able to talk. Uh, uh, but an update on that, for those that aren't aware, um, Google's acting director of political and stakeholder outreach uh, got in touch with the Institute just yesterday to notify them that the labeling of the American mind as a racially oriented publication was a mistake. <laughs> So apparently it's okay to advertise for our big uh, Churchill dinner Saturday night featuring Mike Pompeo after the deadline to respond to the request has passed. Uh, anyway, um, I want to pick up where, where Mike left off and do my assigned duty, which is to talk about um, something that divides conservatives uh, as well and to try and persuade you uh, of the correctness of our position that our modern understanding of the 14th Amendment Citizenship Clause is wrong as a historical and textual matter, but also wrong as a theoretical matter. Um, and there are a couple of um, cases that serve as bookends to my work on this. Uh, one, uh, almost 20 years ago now, with uh, Ed Meese and I filed a brief in the case of Yasser Isam Hamdi versus Rumsfeld, uh, one of the post uh, uh, terrorism cases. That was back in 2003. Hamdi had been born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, while his dad was on a temporary work visa, he was working for Exxon on an oil rig off the coast. 
and uh, when he was two, they went back to their native um, Saudi Arabia, and he was ultimately uh, part of the Taliban in Afghanistan, took up arms against the United States, and was captured and transferred to Guantanamo Bay. Uh, once they figured out he'd been born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and the Internet's a wonderful thing. You can actually find a copy of his birth certificate on there. Um, they started treating him as a U.S. citizen, transferred up to Norfolk instead, in his case, goes all the way up to the United States as though he were a citizen. Um, Justice Scalia, joined by Justice Stevens in dissent, um, accepted a little bit our argument, uh, called him a presumed citizen rather than a citizen, which I thought was a step in the right direction. Um, there's now a case pending in the D.C. District Court um, called uh, uh, Muthana versus Pompeo. Uh, Hoda Muthana was the ISIS terrorist bride who left her good gig in college down in Atlanta and went over and joined ISIS. Um, that didn't work out so well for her, and she's now decided she wants back in the United States. And Secretary Pompeo has said, look, um, your dad was still a diplomat when you were born, and therefore you're not a citizen. Uh, the passport that was issued by prior administrations to you was issued incorrectly. We've revoked it. You're not a citizen. You're not coming back. Um, now, whether or not her dad was still a diplomat at the time uh, is the dispute in the case. Um, but we weighed in with an amicus brief saying, look, it doesn't matter whether he was still a diplomat or not. At most, he was a temporary visitor. And that doesn't make him able to confer automatic citizenship uh, on his daughter when she was born here. So let me uh, kind of use those two cases as the bookends on, on the, the legal argument. The citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment provides that all persons born, there's the birth on U.S. soil part, or naturalizing the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. And I'm going to put a more emphasis there than I have in my prior writings. As manifest by the conjunctive word and, the clause has two components. You've got to be born on U.S. soil and be subject to the jurisdiction of the United States uh, in order to get this automatic citizenship. Now, modernly, subject to the jurisdiction just means to our ears, are you subject to the laws? Are you subject to the SEC's jurisdiction if you do stock trading? Are you subject to the court's jurisdiction? Are you within the geographic territory? It largely becomes redundant to are you within the geographic territory? Are you born in the United States? Um, those that claim that uh, it doesn't, uh, that, that, that it's not entirely redundant are right. It means for them, well, the children of diplomats are not subject to our jurisdiction. They're not even subject to our laws. But that's the only purpose of that clause. Um, and that's the widely held view today. But as uh, Mike pointed out, the 14th Amendment was drafted to codify the 1866 Civil Rights Act. And here there's less ambiguity in the 66 Civil Rights Act. All persons born in the United States and not subject to any foreign power excluding Indians not taxed, are hereby declared to be citizens of the United States. So the question is, did the 14th Amendment work a radical expansion of citizenship by the change in phraseology from not subject to any foreign power to subject to the jurisdiction? And modernly, that would seem to make sense to us. But they were asked about this, and so we don't need to speculate. They were asked specifically, for example, on this change subject to the jurisdiction, are Native Americans, they use the word Indians, I'll, I'll stick with them for a minute, uh, the, are Indians, because are most subject to our military and civil jurisdiction, are they going to be automatic citizens? Um, 
Uh, and the key figures in the drafting of the 14th Amendment, including the, the senator who authored this language or, or proposed this language on the floor of the Senate, said no. Senator Lyman Trumbull writes, what we mean by subject to the jurisdiction is subject to the complete jurisdiction, not owing allegiance to anybody else. In other words, it meant the same thing as the 66 Civil Rights Act. Senator Howard, who actually introduced the language on the floor, says it means a full and complete jurisdiction. The same jurisdiction and extent and quality as applies to every citizen of the United States now. In other words, under the 1866 Act. That meant that the children of Indians uh, who still belong to a tribal relation and hence hold allegiance to another sovereign, however dependent that sovereign was on the United States itself, would not qualify for citizenship under the clause. The interpretive gloss authored by Trumbull and Howard was also accepted by the Supreme Court in the slaughterhouse cases. Here's what the majority said in that case. The main point of the clause was to establish the citizenship of the Negro, the court said. And the phrase, subject to its jurisdiction, was intended to exclude from its operation of children of ministers, councils, and citizens or subjects of foreign states born within the United States. Couldn't be any more clear. Now, that was dicta, but the court ratified that dicta into a holding a decade later in a case called Elk versus Wilkins. John Elk had been born on an Indian reservation, but within the territorial limits of the United States. And he subsequently renounced his tribal relationship and claimed U.S. citizenship. The Supreme Court rejected that claim, holding that subject to the jurisdiction um, required that he be not merely subject in some respect or degree to the jurisdiction of the United States, but completely subject to their political jurisdiction and owing them direct and immediate allegiance. Modernly, let me kind of give an example. If somebody is here from Great Britain visiting in the United States, he's liable to our laws. He has to drive on the right side of the road, not the left side of the road while he's here, but he's not subject to this broader, more complete allegiance-owing jurisdiction. He's a temporary visitor, a guest, and that's all. Uh, Elk was not... Uh, a citizen because he owed allegiance to his tribe and not to the United States. And they were alien nations, distinct political communities, according to the court. Um, now, this was uh, also the, uh, uh, Randy pointed out, Thomas Cooley earlier. This was the same thing taken, and I agree fully that Cooley was the leading constitutional scholar of the day. What Cooley writes in his treatise is that the phrase subject to the jurisdiction meant full and complete jurisdiction such as may consist with allegiance, oh, I'm sorry, uh, to which citizens are generally subject, and not any qualified or partial jurisdiction, such as may consist with allegiance to some other government. Now, you may say, well, how did we get to the where we are, where anybody born, no matter the circumstances, is treated as a citizen? Most point, point themselves to an 1898 case of the Supreme Court called United States versus Wong Kim Ark. And here, Justice Gray, uh, writing for the court, said a child born in the United States of parents of Chinese descent, who at the time of his birth were subjects of the emperor of China, but have a permanent domicile and residence United States, were merely by virtue of his birth a citizen under the 14th Amendment Citizenship Clause. It's very broad language. Um, but I think we need to confine that broad language to the actual holding because 24 times in the opinion, Justice Gray points out that the parents were lawfully and permanently domiciled here. Um, 
I think the dissent in the case makes a compelling argument why even that was not sufficient to confer citizenship, but at least the holding is narrowed uh, to that permanent domicile. And of course, it ties back to that other word I emphasized in the 14th Amendment itself, are citizens of the United States and of the state in which they reside. There had to be some domicile, uh, some permanent attachment to the new body politic, uh, and it had to be a lawful domicile. That's inherent in the word domicile, and that brings in the idea of consent that Mike Anton talked about. Um, now, um, uh, we, we could go on. There's some stunning errors that Justice Gray makes if we're to take his dicta in that case as more uh, establishing more broadly the principle that anybody born on U.S. soil is automatically a citizen. Um, for example, he quotes Justice Story, um, the, the leading constitutional scholar of a generation before the 14th Amendment was adopted, um, for the proposition that persons born in this country are generally deemed citizens and subject of the country. But Gray omits the very next sentence in Justice Story's treatise, where he says, a reasonable qualification would seem to be that it should not apply to the children of parents who were in itinerary, traveling in the country, or who were abiding here for temporary purposes, purposes, as for health, curiosity, or occasional business. Work visas, health visas, tourist visas, um, uh, Joseph Story acknowledged that it would be difficult to assert that that was the general proposition, and that it was universally established. England continued to adhere to its old feudal doctrine of use solely, birth on the soil. Um, Justice Gray's omission of that uh, second half of Justice Story's claim really establishes it as a universal principle the opposite direction. Um, uh, Justice Story's caveat, though, addresses several of the modern issues that have never been addressed by the Supreme Court. And honest scholars will acknowledge that the Supreme Court has never issued a holding on these. Does subject to the jurisdiction um, cover children born to those who are lawfully in the United States but only temporarily, such as on a tourist, student, or work visa? Temporary sojourners, to use the language of the 19th century. Does it extend to children born to those who overstayed their visas and hence become unlawfully present in the United States? Does it extend to diplomats who have remained in the United States after their diplomatic credentials have been revoked? And can it possibly extend to children born to those who were never lawfully present in the United States in the first place? Um, Another example of the error that Justice uh, uh, Gray uh, committed, and I I think this is the most egregious one, he relied on a Supreme Court decision out of New Jersey called Benny versus O'Brien as support for his broad claim that the 14th Amendment affirms the ancient and fundamental rule of citizenship by birth within the U.S. territory um, for all but born here except diplomats and occupying armies. Um, Benny was like Wong Kim Ark. Domic- uh, parents were domiciled here, so the actual holding is limited to that. But the New Jersey court was quite explicit in noting that the 14th Amendment did not provide automatic citizenship beyond that. Two facts must concur, it held. The person must be born here, and he must be subject to the jurisdiction according to the 14th Amendment, which means that the person is not subject to any foreign power. Pretty pretty clear. Uh, Justice Gray just apparently overlooked that language. (laughs) Um, So... uh, uh, what that means is uh, this comports with the key decisions, the key discussion in the debates 
Um, there's a key fight uh, discussion in the debates over the 14th Amendment dealing with the children of Chinese uh, and gypsies. Senator Cohen asked, is the child of a Chinese immigrant in California a citizen under the proposed language? Or the child of a gypsy born in Pennsylvania? If so, what rights have they? Have they any more rights than a sojourner in the United States? Now, what does that question indicate? It indicates um, that we're not going to give citizenship based on racial status, but we are going to continue to make the distinction between are your parents here as part of the body politic or are they here as mere temporary visitors, sojourners? Um, and the language uh, indicated pretty strongly that sojourners were not given this automatic citizenship. That's precisely uh, the holding of the New Jersey Supreme Court uh, in, the new, uh, in the Benny case. Now, the executive branch also picked up on this. There's an attorney general opinion from early in the 1870s, and the Secretary of State in the 1880s sending directives around to U.S. embassies around the world saying if a child was born in the United States while his parents were temporarily visiting here, he is not a citizen and is therefore not eligible to receive a passport. Um, pretty unambiguous. Now, how did we change this? Well, um, our passport forms all the way up until the 1960s. If you were born on U.S. soil, you had to prove citizenship. You had to give a copy of your birth certificate or if you didn't have one, a baptismal certificate showing where you were born. But they also asked about the status of your father, um, more broadly now about the status of your parents. Were either one of them citizens or naturalized to be in the United States. Now that changed in 1967. We dropped that question and we were talking about unelected bureaucrats changing policy earlier. I can't figure out how this change occurred, but we drop all of that supporting material to show the status of your parents. And here's my suspicion. Some bureaucrat in some cubicle in some office someplace uh, working for the passport office was told our form has gotten to be longer than a page. We got to get it down to a page. And he looks at all these questions about the status of parents and said, well, if, if they're born here, they're a citizen, so why do I need all that? And they got rid of it, and it's now down to a page, magically. Um, uh, then the final thing I want to talk about here, and this ties back to the point Mike made about sovereignty. Um, the notion that anyone born here uh, is automatically a citizen is actually a throwback to an old feudal notion. Remember, the English doctrine... Um, was that not only were you a king's subject if you were born on his soil, but you were perpetually the king's subject. It can never renounce it. Can never renounce it. Justice Gray says in Wong Kim Ark that even after the Declaration of Independence, we continue to adhere to this old doctrine of you solely. Patently false. In fact, the Declaration of Independence is probably um, the greatest uh, repudiation of that old feudal doctrine ever written in human history. Mike pointed out at the beginning, paragraph one, about one people claiming to separate from another. Um, but the other, the concluding paragraph is even more clear. We deliberately renounce and expressly renounce any allegiance we have to the, to the, to the, the English king. Um, that was not permissible under the doctrine of use solely. Uh, in fact, not only did we fight that war over that principle, but the 1812 war was fought over that principle as well. At its core... Um, Jefferson points out in the Declaration that governments are instituted among particular peoples to secure for themselves in the best way they can the inalienable rights they have prior to government. Such governments, in order to be legitimate, must be grounded in the consent of the governed. And it's a necessary 
essential corollary to the self-evident proposition of equality. This consent must be present either explicitly or tacitly, not just in the formation of the government, but in the ongoing decision whether to embrace others within the social compact of a particular people. Um, the claim of birthright citizenship rejects that. It's contrary to the principle of consent that is uh, the bedrock principle. It traces its roots not to the republicanism of the American founding, but to the feudalism of medieval England, grounded in the notion that a subject owes perpetual allegiance and fealty to his sovereign. Um, a national corollary uh, to the uh, feudal notion of citizenship was the ban on expatriation embraced by England uh, and led to the war on 1812, as I said. So when Congress passes a companion to the 14th Amendment, um, the Expatriation Act of 1868, it says that the right of expatriation is a natural and inherent right. Now, that means everybody has a right to renounce the allegiance, but it doesn't also mean that everybody has a right to take up a new allegiance without the consent of that body politic. There has to be a bilateral consent. Otherwise, you don't have any notion of consent. These remnants of feudalism were rejected by our founders. They were declared to a candid world uh, that we no longer owed allegiance to the king. Uh, they were rejected again by Congress in 1866 in the Civil Rights Act and by the nation when it ratified the 14th Amendment. Hodemuthana's case presents the courts with an opportunity uh, to address these significant issues and restore the notion that our declaration sets out, that ours is a government grounded in consent, a bilateral consent, the recognition of a sovereign people who can decide for themselves under the prescribed manners who will be admitted to join our body politic. Thanks so much. Uh, I think we're we're past our cutoff time, but since we got started late, I'm gonna we're gonna go for another five minutes for just a couple of questions. Um, so, any questions from the audience? Well, no questions. I guess that means up oh, one question. Yes, Mark. Um, hi. So earlier this year, uh, President Trump was talking about um, instituting a change to birthright citizenship through executive order. Um, do you believe that that would be a legitimate course of action, um, wait for the Supreme Court case, or, or uh, legislatively? I can speak to the legitimacy, and John can speak to the practicality, and I think he's going to say no. It's probably not going to work. Uh, I, I do believe it would be legitimate it, just in that what we have is a situation in which the executive branch departments that report to the president are doing something that they've never been told to do formally, either by a statute law or by an order of their nominal boss, the president, whoever that may be, from a prior administration. In other words, the executive departments just took it upon themselves some decades ago to say, hey, we're just going to say anybody born here under whatever circumstance is a U.S. citizen, and that's that. That's not consistent with our reading of the 14th Amendment, with what the drafters of the 14th Amendment said about it. John just quoted you a ton of case law. It's not consistent with that. And as I said, again, there is no statute requiring that, there's no constitutional amendment requiring that, and there's no order requiring that. So it doesn't seem to me, in principle, uh, I don't see why the, a president, any president, could not say to the executive agencies which report to him, stop doing this thing that nobody ever told you to do in the first place and that's inconsistent with the Constitution and the law. However, given that the um, backlog of misinterpretation of the 14th Amendment, unfortunately, is pretty deep and has a tangled history John can quote some uh, congressional language, not statutes, but interpretations that would uh, make the EO 
you could enact it, it'll be immediately challenged in court. Um, I think we know the way these courts operate. Even if we were on a 100% solid basis, it'd be overturned anyway. You find some judge somewhere in the Ninth Circuit to overturn it. But what John has found is probably it's not just going to be some kook in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, there'd be a lot of very serious judges who would look at it and say, well, based on what Congress has said about this, uh, even in recent decades, we think this has to be resolved statutorily. And therefore, we're not saying the practices you know, of trying to overturn it is illegitimate. We're just saying the EO can't stand. You have to do this in Congress. Right. So, yeah, and I'll take up a little bit more on the legitimacy point. If the Constitution mandated birthright citizenship for everybody born on U.S. soil, the president obviously could not alter that by executive order, nor could Congress alter it by statute. The Constitution would prevail over both of those. But I think, as I've persuasively pointed out, that's not what the Constitution means. And so the president and or Congress, either one, could recognize the the more limited floor that the Constitution sets out. How far above that floor we go is a function of naturalization power that is vested exclusively under our Constitution and Congress. So if Congress wants to retroactively acknowledge citizenship or give citizenship to all the people who were born here to temporary visitors, it can do so under its naturalization power. Um, and until it does so, uh, the president could say we're enforcing the Constitution's floor as written, as understood by those who drafted it and who ratified it. That's pure originalism, and that's what we ought to be doing. Now, you've got a transition. Richard Epstein will say we got we got a transition problem here. We got 60 years of people being told by our own government that they are citizens if they were born here to folks who got here no matter under what circumstances. Uh, And it seems a little bit of a reliance interest to pull the rug out from under them. So whatever happens, whether by Congress or by the president by executive order, I hope it takes account of that reliance interest for practical purposes and makes it prospective only. The last thing I want is when this case gets up to the Supreme Court is to find some Honduran kid who'd been here with straight A's applying for a visa or a passport to go do um, Peace Corps work in Uganda and told he can't do it. That would be what we call a bad facts case. Uh, I think the Hoda Muthana case, whose parents probably committed um, some diplomatic fraud in trying to renounce his diplomatic status without telling anybody, you know, the month before she was born so that they could get citizenship for her. Um, That's a good facts case. And I hope hope the case gets decided on that issue because we'll then um, address some of these things that have just kind of built into our nation's psyche without any legal ruling and directly contrary to the explicit language and discussion uh, that existed at the time of the 14th Amendment was ratified. Yeah, I, I don't think we really have time for more questions since we're over time. I, I will mention the fact that about two months ago, the U.S. Justice Department, for the first time ever in its entire history, indicted a number of individuals for engaging in birthright tourism uh, by running uh, uh, tourist agencies whose only job it was was to bring uh, individuals from China here so that they could have children and falsely uh, engage in all kinds of lies on the visa applications that got them into the country just for the sole purpose of obtaining uh, U.S. citizenship. And, and, and let me add, in the brief they filed just this week in the Hoda Muthana case, footnote five, I commend it to all of your attention. If the court were to determine that we're wrong about whether he was still a diplomat or not, and therefore necessary to reach the issue advanced by the Claremont amicus brief, notwithstanding the government's argument for dismissing the case otherwise, amicus raises a serious legal question that would merit further briefing. The Department of Justice is now on record as saying we've got to address this issue, and this is a huge step in the right direction, it seems to me. 
All right, a round of applause, please, for our speaker. And I, just, I want to thank everybody for, for coming and remind you, if you missed last year's symposium, there is a paper on the Heritage website that has uh, what all the speakers said. If you're interested in, in taking a look at that. Thank you. So can we stop them? The answer, of course, is, well, wait, you mean brain in birth? No. No, you can't. It's more important.